0: Chapter one of Oliver Twist or the Parish Boys Progress This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. Recording by Tide Hines. Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. Chapter one Treats of the place where Oliver Twist was born and of the circumstances attending his birth. Among other public buildings in a certain town, which for many reasons it would be prudent to refrain from mentioning, and to which I will assign no fictitious name, there was one anciently common to most towns, great or small, to wit, a workhouse. And in this workhouse was born, on a day and date which I need not trouble myself to repeat, inasmuch as it can be of no possible consequence to the reader at this stage of the business at all events, the item of mortality, whose name is prefixed to the head of this chapter. For a long time after it was ushered into this world of sorrow and trouble by the parish surgeon, it remained a matter of considerable doubt whether the child would survive to bear any name at all, in which case it is somewhat more than probable that these memoirs would never have appeared, or, if they had, that being comprised within a couple of pages, they would have possessed the inestimable merit of being the most concise and faithful specimen of biography extant in the literature of any age or country. Although I am not disposed to maintain that the being born in a workhouse is in itself the most fortunate and enviable circumstance that can possibly befall a human being, I do mean to say that in this particular instance it was the best thing for Oliver Twist that could by possibility have occurred. The fact is that there was considerable difficulty in inducing Oliver to take upon himself the office of respiration, a troublesome practice, but one which custom has rendered necessary to our easy existence, and for some time he lay gasping on a little flock mattress rather unequally poised between this world and the next, the balance being decidedly in favour of the latter. Now if during this brief period Oliver had been surrounded by careful grandmothers, anxious aunts, experienced nurses, and doctors of profound wisdom, He would most inevitably and indubitably have been killed in no time. There being nobody by, however, but a pauper old woman, who was rendered rather misty by an unwonted allowance of beer, and a parish surgeon who did such matters by contract, Oliver and Nature fought out the point between them. The result was that after a few struggles Oliver breathed, sneezed, and proceeded to advertise to the inmates of the workhouse the fact of a new burden having been imposed upon the parish by setting up as loud a cry as could reasonably have been expected from a male infant, who had not been possessed of that very useful appendage, a voice, for a much longer space of time than three minutes and a quarter. As Oliver gave this first proof of the free and proper action of his lungs, the patchwork coverlet which was carelessly flung over the iron bedstead rustled, the pale face of a young woman was raised feebly from the pillow, and a faint voice imperfectly articulated the words, Let me see the child, and die." The surgeon had been sitting, with his face turned towards the fire, giving the palms of his hands a warm and a rub alternately. As the young woman spoke, he rose, and, advancing to the bed's head, said with more kindness than might have been expected of him, "'Oh, you must not talk about dying yet!' "'Lord bless her dear heart, no,' interposed the nurse, hastily depositing in her pocket a green-glass bottle the contents of which she had been tasting in a corner with evident satisfaction. Oh, Lord, bless her dear heart, when she has lived as long as I have, sir, and had thirteen children of her own, and all in dead except two, and them in the workers with me, she'll know better than to take on in that way. Bless her dear heart! Think what it is to be a mother, there's a dear young lamb, do!" Apparently this consolatory perspective of a mother's prospects failed in producing its due effect. The patient shook her head and stretched out her hand towards the child. The surgeon deposited it in her arms. She imprinted her cold, white lips passionately on its forehead, passed her hands over her face, gazed wildly round, shuddered, fell back, and died. They chafed her breast, hands, and temples, but the blood had stopped for ever. They talked of hope and comfort. They had been strangers too long. "'It's all over, Mrs. Tingamy,' said the surgeon, at last. "'Ah, poor dear, so tis,' said the nurse, picking up the cork of the green bottle, which had fallen out on the pillow as she stooped to take up the child. "'Poor dear!' "'You needn't mind sending up to me if the child cries, nurse,' said the surgeon, putting on his gloves with great deliberation. "'It's very likely it will be troublesome. Give it a little gruel, if it is.' He put on his hat, and, pausing by the bedside, on his way to the door, added, She was a good-looking girl, too. Where did she come from? She was brought here last night, replied the old woman, by the overseer's order. She was found lying in the street. She had walked some distance, for her shoes were worn to pieces, but where she came from or where she was going to nobody knows. The surgeon leaned over the body and raised the left hand. The old story, he said, shaking his head. No wedding-ring, I see. Ah! Good-night." The medical gentleman walked away to dinner, and the nurse, having once more applied herself to the green bottle, sat down on a low chair before the fire and proceeded to dress the infant. What an excellent example of the power of dress young Oliver Twist was! Wrapped in the blanket which had hitherto formed his only covering, he might have been the child of a nobleman or a beggar. It would have been hard for the haughtiest stranger to have assigned him his proper station in society. But now that he was enveloped in the old calico robes which had grown yellow in the same service, he was badged and ticketed, and fell into his place at once—a parish child, the orphan of a workhouse, the humble, half-starved drudge, to be cuffed and buffeted through the world, despised by all and pitied by none. Oliver cried lustily. If he could have known that he was an orphan left to the tender mercies of church wardens and overseers, perhaps he would have cried the louder. End of chapter one Chapter two of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ty Hines Treats of Oliver Twist's Growth, Education and Board For the next eight or ten months Oliver was the victim of a systematic course of treachery and deception. He was brought up by hand. The hungry and destitute situation of the infant orphan was duly reported by the workhouse authorities to the parish authorities. The parish authorities inquired with dignity of the workhouse authorities, whether there was no female then domiciled in the house who was in a situation to impart to Oliver Twist the consolation and nourishment of which he stood in need. The workhouse authorities replied with humility that there was not. Upon this the parish authorities magnanimously and humanely resolved that Oliver should be farmed, or, in other words, that he should be despatched to a branch workhouse some three miles off where twenty or thirty other juvenile offenders against the poor laws rolled about the floor all day without the inconvenience of too much food or too much clothing under the parental superintendence of an elderly female who received the culprits at and for the consideration of sevenpence-halfpenny per small head per week sevenpence-halfpenny's worth per week is a good round diet for a child a great deal may be got for sevenpence-halfpenny quite enough to overload its stomach and make it uncomfortable The elderly female was a woman of wisdom and experience. She knew what was good for children, and she had a very accurate perception of what was good for herself. So she appropriated the greater part of the weekly stipend to her own use, and consigned the rising parochial generation to even a shorter allowance than was originally provided for them, thereby finding in the lowest depth a deeper still, and proving herself a very great experimental philosopher. Everybody knows the story of another experimental philosopher, who had a great theory about a horse being able to live without eating, and who demonstrated it so well that he had got his own horse down to a straw a day, and would unquestionably have rendered him a very spirited and rampacious animal on nothing at all, if he had not died four-and-twenty hours before he was to have had his first comfortable bait of air. Unfortunately for the experimental philosophy of the female to whose protecting care Oliver Twist was delivered over, a similar result usually attended the operation of her system. For at the very moment when the child had contrived to exist upon the smallest possible portion of the weakest possible food, it did perversely happen in eight and a half cases out of ten, either that it sickened from want and cold, or fell into the fire from neglect, or got half smothered by accident, in any one of which cases the miserable little being was usually summoned into another world and there gathered to the father it had never known in this. Occasionally, when there was some more than usually interesting inquest upon a parish child who had been overlooked in turning up a bedstead, or inadvertently scalded to death when there happened to be a washing—though the latter accident was very scarce, anything approaching to a washing being of rare occurrence in the farm—the jury would take it into their heads to ask troublesome questions, or the parishioners would rebelliously affix their signatures to a remonstrance. But these impertinences were speedily checked by the evidence of the surgeon and the testimony of the beadle, the former of whom had always opened the body and found nothing inside, which was very probable indeed, and the latter of whom invariably swore whatever the parish wanted, which was very self-devotional. Besides, the board made periodical pilgrimages to the farm, and always sent the beadle the day before to say they were going. The children were neat and clean to behold when they went, and what more would the people have? It cannot be expected that this system of farming would produce any very extraordinary or luxuriant crop. Oliver Twist's ninth birthday found him a pale, thin child, somewhat diminutive in stature, and decidedly small in circumference. But nature, or inheritance, had implanted a good, sturdy spirit in Oliver's breast. It had had plenty of room to expand, thanks to the spare diet of the establishment and perhaps to this circumstance may be attributed his having any ninth birthday at all. Be this as it may, however, it was his ninth birthday, and he was keeping it in the coal-cellar with a select party of two other young gentlemen, who, after participating with him in a sound thrashing, had been locked up for atrociously presuming to be hungry, when Mrs. Mann, the good lady of the house, was unexpectedly startled by the apparition of Mr. Bumble the beadle, striving to undo the wicket of the garden-gate.
1: Goodness gracious is that you mr bumble sir
0: said mrs mann thrusting her head out of the window in well-affected ecstasies of joy susan take oliver and them two brats upstairs and wash them directly
1: my heart alive mr bumble how glad i am to see you
0: surely now mr bumble was a fat man and a choleric so instead of responding to this open-hearted salutation in a kindred spirit he gave the little wicket a tremendous shake and then bestowed upon it a kick which could have emanated from no leg but a beadle's.
1: "'Law,
0: only think,' said Mrs. Mann, running out, for the three boys had been removed by this time, "'only think of that, that I should have forgotten that the gate was bolted on the inside on account of them dear children. Walk in, sir, walk in, pray Mr. Bumble do, sir.' Although this invitation was accompanied with a curtsy that might have softened the heart of a churchwarden, it by no means mollified the beadle do you think this respectful or proper conduct mrs mann inquired mr bumble grasping his cane to keep the parish officers a at your garden gate when they come here upon parochial business with the parochial orphans are you aware mrs mann that you are as i may say a parochial delegate and i stay i
1: am sure mr bumble that i was only telling one or two of the
0: dear children as is so fond of you that it was you a-coming replied mrs mann with great humility Mr. Bumble had a great idea of his oratorical powers and his importance. He had displayed the one, and vindicated the other. He relaxed. "'Well, well, Mrs. Mann,' he replied in a calmer tone, "'it may be, as you say, it may be. Lead the way in, Mrs. Mann, for I come on business, and have something to say.' Mrs. Mann ushered the beadle into a small parlour with a brick floor, placed a seat for him, and officiously deposited his cocked hat and cane on the table before him. Mr. Bumble wiped from his forehead the perspiration which his walk had engendered, glanced complacently at the cocked-hat, and smiled. Yes, he smiled—beetles are but men—and Mr. Bumble smiled. "'Now, don't you be offended at what I am going to say,' observed Mrs. Mann, with captivating sweetness. "'You've had a long walk, you know, but I wouldn't mention it. Now will you take a little drop of something, Mr. Bumble?' "'Not a drop—not a drop said Mr. Bumble, waving his right hand in a dignified but placid manner. "'I think you will,' said Mrs. Mann, who had noticed the tone of the refusal and the gesture that had accompanied
1: it. "'Just a little drop, with a little cold water, and a lump of sugar.'
0: Mr. Bumble coughed. "'Now, just a little drop,' said Mrs. Mann persuasively. "'What is it?' inquired the beadle. "'Why, it's what I'm obliged to keep a little of in the house—to
1: put into the blessed
0: infant's Daffy when they ain't well, Mr. Bumble,' replied Mrs. Mann, as she opened a corner cupboard, and took down a bottle and glass. "'It's gin. I'll not deceive you, Mr. B.—it's gin.' "'Do you give the children Daffy, Mrs. Mann?' inquired Bumble, following with his eyes the interesting process of mixing. "'Ah, bless em that I do, dear as it is!' "'replied the nurse. "'I couldn't see him suffer before my very eyes, you know, sir.' "'No,' said Mr. Bumble, approvingly. "'No, you could not. "'You are a humane woman, Mrs. Mann.' "'Here she set down the glass. "'I shall take an early opportunity of mentioning it to the board, Mrs. Mann.' "'He drew it towards him. "'You feel as a mother, Mrs. Mann.' "'He stirred the gin and water. "'Thy—thy drink your health with cheerfulness, Mrs. Mann.' "'And he swallowed half of it.' now about business said the beadle taking out a leathern pocket-book the child that was half-baptised oliver twist is nine-year-old to-day bless him interposed mrs mann inflaming her left eye with a corner of her apron and notwithstanding an offered reward of ten pound which was afterwards increased to twenty pound notwithstanding the most superlative and on my saying supernatural exertions on the part of this parish said bumble we have never been able to discover who is his father or what was his mother's settlement name or condition mrs mann raised her hands in astonishment but added after a few moments reflection how comes he to have any name at all then the beadle drew himself up with great pride and said "'I invented it.' "'You, Mr. Bumble?' I, Mrs. Mann, we name our fondlings in alphabetical order. "'The last was a S. A Swubble, I named him. "'This was a T. Twist, I named him. "'The next one as comes will be Unwin and the next Vilkins. "'I've got names ready-made to the end of the alphabet "'and all the way through it again when we come to Z.' "'Why, you are quite a literary character, sir.' said mrs mann well yeah, well said the beadle evidently gratified with a compliment "Perhaps i may be Perhaps i may be mrs mann he finished the gin-and-water and added oliver being now too old to remain here the board have determined to take him back into the house i have come out myself to take him there so let me see him at once i'll fetch him directly said mrs mann leaving the room for that purpose Oliver, having had by this time as much of the outer coat of dirt which encrusted his face and hands removed, as could be scrubbed off in one washing, was led into the room by his benevolent protectress. "'Make a bow to the gentleman, Oliver,' said Mrs. Mann. Oliver made a bow, which was divided between the beadle on the chair and the cocked-hat on the table. "'Will you go along with me, Oliver?' said Mr. Bumble, in a majestic voice. Oliver was about to say that he would go along with anybody with great readiness, when, glancing upward, he caught sight of Mrs. Mann, who had got behind the beadle's chair, and was shaking her fist at him with a furious countenance. He took the hint at once, for the fist had been too often impressed upon his body, not to be deeply impressed upon his recollection. "'Will she go with me?' inquired poor Oliver. "'No, she can't,' replied Mr. Bumble. "'But she'll come and see you sometimes.' This was no very great consolation to the child. Young as he was, however, he had sense enough to make a feint of feeling great regret at going away. It was no very great difficult matter for the boy to call tears into his eyes. Hunger and recent ill-usage are great assistance if you want to cry. And Oliver cried very naturally, indeed. Mrs. Mann gave him a thousand embraces, and what Oliver wanted a great deal more—a piece of bread and butter. Lest he should seem too hungry when he got to the workhouse. With the slice of bread in his hand, and the little brown-cloth parish cap on his head, Oliver was then led away by Mr. Bumble from the wretched home where one kind word or look had never lighted the gloom of his infant years. And yet he burst into an agony of childish grief as the cottage gate closed after him. Wretched as were the little companions in misery he was leaving behind, they were the only friends he had ever known a sense of his loneliness in the great wide world sank into the child's heart for the first time. Mr. Bumble walked on with long strides. Little Oliver, firmly grasping his gold-laced cuff, trotted beside him, inquiring at the end of every quarter of a mile whether they were nearly there. To these interrogations Mr. Bumble returned very brief and snappish replies, for the temporary blandness which gin-and-water awakens in some bosoms had by this time evaporated and he was once again a beadle. Oliver had not been within the walls of the workhouse a quarter of an hour, and had scarcely completed the demolition of a second slice of bread, when Mr. Bumble, who had handed him over to the care of an old woman, returned, and, telling him it was a board night, informed him that the board had said he was to appear before it forthwith. Not having a very clearly defined notion of what a live board was, Oliver was rather astounded by this intelligence. And was not quite certain whether he ought to laugh or cry. He had no time to think about the matter, however, for Mr. Bumble gave him a tap on the head with his cane to wake him up and another on the back to make him lively, and bidding him to follow, conducted him into a large whitewashed room where eight or ten fat gentlemen were sitting round a table at the top of the table, seated in an armchair rather higher than the rest, was a particularly fat gentleman with a very round red face. "'Bow to the board,' said Bumble. Oliver brushed away two or three tears that were lingering in his eyes, and, seeing no board but the table, fortunately bowed to that. "'What's your name, boy?' said the gentleman in the high chair. Oliver was frightened at the sight of so many gentlemen, which made him tremble, and the beadle gave him another tap behind, which made him cry. These two causes made him answer in a very low and hesitating voice. Whereupon a gentleman in a white waistcoat said he was a fool, which was a capital way of raising his spirits and putting him quite at his ease. "By," said the gentleman in the high chair. Now "'Listen to me. You know you're an orphan, I suppose?' "'What's that, sir?' inquired poor Oliver. "'The boy is a fool. I thought he was,' said the gentleman in the white waistcoat. "Pash," said the gentleman, who had spoken first. "'You know you've got no father and mother, and that you were brought up by the parish, don't you?' "'Yes, sir,' replied Oliver, weeping bitterly. "'What are you crying for?' inquired the gentleman, in the white waistcoat, and, to be sure, it was very extraordinary. What could the boy be crying for?' "'I hope you say your prayers every night,' said another gentleman, in a gruff voice, "'and pray for the people who feed you and take care of you, like a Christian.' "'Yes, sir,' stammered the boy. The gentleman who spoke last was unconsciously right. It would have been very like a Christian, and a marvellously good Christian too, if Oliver had prayed for the people who fed and took care of him. But he hadn't, because nobody had taught him. Well, you have come here to be educated and taught a useful trade, said the red-faced gentleman in the high chair. So you'll begin to pick oakum tomorrow morning at six o'clock, added the surly one in the white waistcoat. For the combination of both these blessings in the one simple process of picking oakum, Oliver bowed low by the direction of the beadle, and was then hurried away to a large ward where, on a rough hard bed, he sobbed himself to sleep. What a noble illustration of the tender laws of England! They let the paupers go to sleep. Poor Oliver! he little thought, as he lay sleeping in happy unconsciousness of all around him, that the board had that very day arrived at a decision which would exercise the most material influence over all his future fortunes. But they had, and this was it. The members of this board were very sage, deep, philosophical men, and when they came to turn their attention to the workhouse they found out at once what ordinary folks would never have discovered. The poor people liked it. It was a regular place of public entertainment for the poorer classes, a tavern where there was nothing to pay, a public breakfast, dinner, tea and supper all the year round a brick-and-mortar Elysium, where it was all play and no work. Oho! said the board, looking very knowing, we are the fellows to set this to rights. We'll stop it all in no time. So they established the rule that all poor people should have the alternative—for they would compel nobody—not they—of being starved by a gradual process in the house, or by a quick one out of it. With this view they contracted with the waterworks to lay on an unlimited supply of water, and with a corn-factor to supply periodically small quantities of oatmeal, and issue three meals of thin gruel a day, with an onion twice a week, and half a roll on Sundays. They made a great many other wise and humane regulations, having reference to the ladies, which it is not necessary to repeat, kindly undertook to divorce poor married people, in consequence of the great expense of a suit in doctor's commons, and instead of compelling a man to support his family as they had theretofore done took his family away from him and made him a bachelor. There is no saying how many applicants for relief under these last two heads might have started up in all classes of society if it had not been coupled with the workhouse. But the board were long-headed men and had provided for this difficulty. The relief was inseparable from the workhouse and the gruel, and that frightened people. For the first six months after Oliver Twist was removed the system was in full operation. It was rather expensive at first, in consequence of the increase in the undertaker's bill, and the necessity of taking in the clothes of all the paupers which fluttered loosely on their wasted, shrunken forms, after a week or two's gruel. But the number of workhouse inmates got thin as well as the paupers, and the board were in ecstasies. The room in which the boys were fed was a large stone hall, with a copper at one end, out of which the master, dressed in an apron for the purpose, and assisted by one or two women, ladled the gruel at meal-times. Of this festive composition each boy had one porringer and no more, except on occasions of great public rejoicing, when he had two ounces and a quarter of bread besides. The bowls never wanted washing. The boys polished them with their spoons till they shone again, and when they had performed this operation, which never took very long, the spoons being nearly as large as the bowls, They would sit staring at the copper with such eager eyes as if they could have devoured the very bricks of which it was composed, employing themselves, meanwhile, in sucking their fingers most assiduously with a view of catching up any stray splashes of gruel that might have been cast thereon. Boys have generally excellent appetites. Oliver Twist and his companions suffer the tortures of slow starvation for three months. At last they got so voracious and wild with hunger, that one boy, who was tall for his age, and hadn't been used to that sort of thing, for his father had kept a small cookshop, hinted darkly to his companions that unless he had another basin of gruel per diem, he was afraid he might some night happen to eat the boy who slept next him, who happened to be a weakly youth of tender age. He had a wild, hungry eye, and they implicitly believed him. A council was held. Lots were cast who should walk up to the master after supper that evening and ask for more. And it fell to Oliver Twist. The evening arrived. The boys took their places. The master, in his cook's uniform, stationed himself at the copper. His pauper assistants ranged themselves behind him. The gruel was served out, and a long grace was said over the short commons. The gruel disappeared. The boys whispered each other and winked at Oliver, while his next neighbours nudged him. Child as he was, he was desperate with hunger and reckless with misery. He rose from the table and, advancing to the master, basin and spoon in hand, said, somewhat alarmed at his own temerity, "'Please, sir, I want some more.' The master was a fat, healthy man, but he turned very pale. He gazed in stupefied astonishment on the small rebel for some seconds, and then clung for support to the copper. The assistants were paralysed with wonder, the boys with fear. "'What?' said the master at length, in a faint voice. "'Please, sir,' replied Oliver. "'I want some more.' The master aimed a blow at Oliver's head with the ladle, pinioned him in his arm, and shrieked aloud for the beadle. The board were sitting in solemn conclave when Mr. Bumble rushed into the room in great excitement, and addressing the gentleman in the high-chair said— "'Mr. Limpkins, I beg your pardon, sir. "'Not a twist has asked for more.' But there was a general start. Horror was depicted on every countenance. "'For more,' said Mr. Limpkins. "'May compose yourself, Bumble, and answer me distinctly. Do I understand that he asked for more after he had eaten the supper allotted by the dietary?' "'He did, sir,' replied Bumble. "'That boy will be hung,' said the gentleman in the white waistcoat. "'I know that boy will be hung.' Nobody controverted the prophetic gentleman's opinion. An animated discussion took place. Oliver was ordered into instant confinement, and a bill was next morning pasted on the outside of the gate, offering a reward of five pounds to anybody who would take Oliver Twist off the hands of the parish. In other words, five pounds and Oliver Twist were offered to any man or woman who wanted an apprentice to any trade, business, or calling. I never was more convinced of anything in my life, said the gentleman in the white waistcoat, as he knocked at the gate and read the bill next morning. I never was more convinced of anything in my life than I am that that boy will come to be hung. As I propose to show in the sequel whether the white waistcoated gentleman was right or not, I shall perhaps mar the interest of this narrative, supposing it to possess any at all, if I venture to hint just yet whether the life of Oliver Twist had this violent termination or no. End of Chapter Two. Chapter Three of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. Relates how Oliver Twist was very near getting a place, which would not have been a sinecure. For a week after the commission of the impious and profane offence of asking for more oliver remained a close prisoner in the dark and solitary room to which he had been consigned by the wisdom and mercy of the board it appears at first sight not unreasonable to suppose that if he had entertained a becoming feeling of respect for the prediction of the gentleman in the white waistcoat he would have established that sage individual's prophetic character once and for ever by tying one end of his pocket-handkerchief to a hook in the wall and attaching himself to the other To the performance of this feat, however, there was one obstacle—namely, that pocket-handkerchiefs, being decided articles of luxury, had been, for all future times and ages, removed from the noses of paupers by the express order of the board, in council assembled, solemnly given and pronounced under their hands and seals. There was a still greater obstacle in Oliver's youth and childishness. He only cried bitterly all day, and when the long, dismal night came on, spread his little hands before his eyes to shut out the darkness and crouching in the corner tried to sleep ever and anon waking with a start and tremble and drawing himself closer and closer to the wall as if to feel even its cold hard surface were a protection in the gloom and loneliness which surrounded him let it not be supposed by the enemies of the system that during the period of his solitary incarceration Oliver was denied the benefit of exercise, the pleasure of society, or the advantages of religious consolation. As for exercise, it was nice cold weather, and he was allowed to perform his ablutions every morning under the pump, in a stone yard, in the presence of Mr. Bumble, who prevented his catching cold and caused a tingling sensation to pervade his frame, by repeated applications of the cane. As for society, he was carried every other day into the hall where the boys dined and there sociably flogged as a public warning and example. And so far from being denied the advantages of religious consolation, he was kicked into the same apartment every evening at prayer-time, and there permitted to listen to and console his mind with a general supplication of the boys, containing a special clause, therein inserted by authority of the board, in which they entreated to be made good, virtuous, contented, and obedient and to be guarded from the sins and vices of Oliver Twist, whom the supplication distinctly set forth to be under the exclusive patronage and protection of the powers of wickedness, and an article direct from the manufactory of the very devil himself. It chanced one morning, while Oliver's affairs were in this auspicious and comfortable state, that Mr. Gamfield, chimney-sweep, went his way down the high street, deeply cogitating in his mind his ways and means of paying certain arrears of rent, for which his landlord had become rather pressing. Mr. Gamfield's most sanguine estimate of his finances could not raise them within full five pounds of the desired amount, and in a species of arithmetical desperation he was alternately cudgelling his brains and his donkey, when, passing the workhouse, his eyes encountered the bill on the gate. "'Whoa!' said Mr. Gamfield to the donkey. The donkey was in a state of profound abstraction wondering probably whether he was destined to be regaled with a cabbage-stalk or two when he had disposed of the two sacks of soot with which the little cart was laden so without noticing a word of command he jogged onward Mr. Gamfield growled a fierce imprecation on the donkey generally but more particularly on his eyes and running after him bestowed a blow on his head which would inevitably have beaten in any skull but a donkey's then catching hold of the bridle he gave his jaw a sharp wrench by way of gentle reminder that he was not his own master, and by these means turned him round. He then gave him another blow on the head, just to stun him till he came back again. Having completed these arrangements, he walked up to the gate to read the bill. The gentleman with the white waistcoat was standing at the gate with his hands behind him, after having delivered himself of some profound sentiments in the board-room, having witnessed the little dispute between Mr. Gamfield and the donkey. He smiled joyously when that person came up to read the bill, for he saw at once that Mr. Gamfield was exactly the sort of master Oliver Twist wanted. Mr. Gamfield smiled too as he perused the document, for five pounds was just the sum he had been wishing for, and, as to the boy with which it was encumbered, Mr. Gamfield, knowing what the dietary of the workhouse was, well knew he would be a nice small pattern, just the very thing for register stoves. So he spelt the bill through again, from beginning to end, and then, touching his fur cap in token of humility, accosted the gentleman in the white waistcoat. "'This here boy, sir, what the parish wants to prentice,' said Mr. Gamfield. "'Aye, my man,' said the gentleman in the white waistcoat, with a condescending smile, "'what of him?' "'If the parish would like him to learn a right pleasant trade in a good spectable chimbley-sweeping business,' said Mr. Gamfield, "'I wants a prentice, and I am ready to take him.' "'Walk in,' said the gentleman in the white waistcoat. Mr. Gamfield, having lingered behind to give the donkey another blow on the head and another wrench of the jaw, as a caution not to run away in his absence, followed the gentleman with the white waistcoat into the room where Oliver had first seen him. "'It's a nasty trade,' said Mr. Limpkins, when Gamfield had again stated his wish. "'Young boys have been smothered in chimneys before now,' said another gentleman, "'That's because they damped the straw afore they lit it in the chimney, to make em come down again,' said Gamfield. "'That's all smoke and no blaze. Whereas smoke ain't no use at all in making a boy come down, for it only sins him to sleep,
1: and that's what he likes. "'Boys is very obstinate and very lazy, gentlemen, and there's nothing like a good-off blaze to make em come down with a run.' It's humane, too, gentlemen, because even if they stuck in the chimbley, roasting their feet
0: makes them struggle to extricate theirselves." The gentleman in the white waistcoat appeared very much amused by this explanation, but his mirth was speedily checked by a look from Mr. Limkins. The board then proceeded to converse among themselves for a few minutes, but in so low a tone that the words, saving of expenditure, looked well in the accounts, have a printed report published. Were alone audible. These only chanced to be heard, indeed, on account of their being very frequently repeated with great emphasis. At length the whispering ceased, and the members of the board, having resumed their seats and their solemnity, Mr. Limkin said, We have considered your proposition, and we don't approve of it. Uh, not at all, said the gentleman in the white waistcoat. Decidedly not, added the other members. As Mr. Gamfield did happen to labour under the slight imputation of having bruised three or four boys to death already, it occurred to him that the board had, perhaps, in some unaccountable freak, taken it into their heads that this extraneous circumstance ought to influence their proceedings. It was very unlike their general mode of doing business, if they had, but still, as he had no particular wish to revive the rumour, he twisted his cap in his hands and walked slowly from the table. "'You won't let me have him, gentlemen?' said Mr. Gamfield, pausing near the door. "'No,' replied Mr. Limpkins. "'At least, as it's a nasty business, we think you ought to take something less than the premium we offered.' Mr. Gamfield's countenance brightened, as with a quick step he returned to the table and said, "'What'll you give, gentlemen? Come, don't be too hard on a poor man. What'll you give?' "'I should say three pounds, ten was plenty,' said Mr. Limpkins. Ten shillings too much, said the gentleman in the white waistcoat. Come, said Gamfield, say four pound, gentlemen. Say four pound, and ye got good in them for good and all there. Three pounds ten, repeated Mr Limpkins firmly. Come, I'll spit the difference, gentlemen, urged Gamfield. Three pounds fifteen. Not a farthing more, was the firm reply of Mr Limpkins you're desperate hard upon me gentlemen said gamfield wavering pooh pooh nonsense said the gentleman in the white waistcoat he'd be cheap with nothing at all as a premium take him you silly fellow he's just the boy for you he wants the stick now and then it'll do him good and his board needn't come very expensive for he hasn't been overfed since he was born mr gamfield gave an arch look at the faces round the table and observing a smile on all of them gradually broke into a smile himself. The bargain was made. Mr. Bumble was at once instructed that Oliver Twist and his indentures were to be conveyed before the magistrate for signature and approval that very afternoon. In pursuance of this determination, little Oliver, to his excessive astonishment, was released from bondage, and ordered to put himself into a clean shirt. He had hardly achieved this very unusual gymnastic performance, when Mr. Bumble brought him with his own hands a basin of gruel, and the holiday allowance of two ounces and a quarter of bread. At this tremendous sight Oliver began to cry very piteously, thinking, not unnaturally, that the board must have determined to kill him for some useful purpose, or they never would have begun to fatten him up in that way. "'Don't make your eyes red, Oliver, but eat your food and be thankful.' Said Mr. Bumble, in a tone of impressive pomposity, You're a-going to be made apprentice of Oliver apprentice sir said the child, trembling. Yes, Oliver said, Mr. Bumble, the kind and blessed gentleman which is so many parents to you, Oliver, when you have none of your own, are going to apprentice you and set you up in life and make a man of you, although the expense to the parish is three pound ten, three pound ten Oliver Seventy shillings, one hundred and forty-sixpences, and all for a naughty orphan which nobody can't love. As Mr. Bumble paused to take a breath after delivering this address in an awful voice, the tears rolled down the poor child's face, and he sobbed bitterly. "'Come,' said Mr. Bumble, somewhat less pompously, for it was gratifying to his feelings to observe the effect his eloquence had produced. "'Come, Oliver.' wipe your eyes with the cuffs of your jacket and don't dry into your gruel that's a very foolish action Oliver. it certainly was for there was quite enough water in it already on their way to the magistrate mr bumble instructed oliver that all he would have to do would be to look very happy and say when the gentleman asked him if he wanted to be apprenticed that he should like it very much indeed both of which injunctions oliver promised to obey the rather as mr bumble threw in a gentle hint that if he failed in either particular there was no telling what would be done to him when they arrived at the office he was shut up in a little room by himself and admonished by mr bumble to stay there until he came back to fetch him there the boy remained with a palpitating heart for half an hour at the expiration of which time mr bumble thrust in his head unadorned with a cocked hat and said aloud now oliver my dear come to the gentleman As Mr. Bumble said this, he put on a grim and threatening look, and added, in a low voice, "'Mind what I told you, you young rascal!' Oliver stared innocently in Mr. Bumble's face at this somewhat contradictory style of address, but that gentleman prevented his offering any remark thereupon by leading him at once into an adjoining room, the door of which was open. It was a large room, with a great window. Behind a desk sat two old gentlemen with powdered heads, one of whom was reading the newspaper, while the other was perusing, with the aid of a pair of tortoiseshell spectacles, a small piece of parchment which lay before him. Mr. Limpkins was standing in front of the desk on one side, and Mr. Gamfield with a partially washed face on the other, while two or three bluff-looking men in top-boots were lounging about. The old gentleman with the spectacles gradually dozed off over the little bit of parchment, and there was a short pause after Oliver had been stationed by Mr. Bumble in front of the desk. "'This is the boy, Your Worship,' said Mr. Bumble. The old gentleman, who was reading the newspaper, raised his head for a moment, and pulled the other old gentleman by the sleeve, whereupon the last-mentioned old gentleman woke up. "'Oh, is this the boy?' said the old gentleman. "'This is him, sir,' replied Mr. Bumble. "'Bow to the magistrate, my dear. Oliver roused himself and made his best obeisance. He had been wondering, with his eyes fixed on the magistrate's powder, whether all boards were born with that white stuff on their heads, and were boards from thenceforth on that account. "'Well,' said the old gentleman, "'I suppose he's fond of chimney-sweeping?' "'He doubts on it, your worship,' replied Bumble, giving Oliver a sly pinch, to intimate that he had better not say he didn't. "'And he will be asleep, will he?' inquired the old gentleman if we was to bind him to any other trade to-morrow we'd run away simultaneous your worship replied bumble
1: and this man that's to be his master you sir you'll treat him well and feed him and do all that sort of thing will you
0: said the old gentleman when i says i will or means i will replied mr gamfield doggedly you're a rough speaker my friend but you look an honest open-hearted man said the old gentleman turning his spectacles in the direction of the candidate for oliver's premium whose villainous countenance was a regular stamped receipt for cruelty but the magistrate was half blind and half childish so he couldn't reasonably be expected to discern what other people did i hope i am sir said mr gamfield with an ugly leer i have no doubt you are my friend replied the old gentleman fixing his spectacles more firmly on his nose and looking about him for the inkstand. It was the critical moment of Oliver's fate. If the inkstand had been where the old gentleman thought it was, he would have dipped his pen into it and signed the indentures, and Oliver would have been straightway hurried off. But as it chanced to be immediately under his nose it followed as a matter of course that he looked all over his desk for it, without finding it, and happening in the course of his search to look straight before him his gaze encountered the pale and terrified face of Oliver Twist, who, despite all the admonitory looks and pinches of Bumble, was regarding the repulsive countenance of his future master, with a mingled expression of horror and fear, too palpable to be mistaken even by a half-blind magistrate. The old gentleman stopped, laid down his pen, and looked from Oliver to Mr. Limpkins, who attempted to take snuff with a cheerful and unconcerned aspect. "'My boy said the old gentleman, leaning over his desk. Oliver started at the sound. He might be excused for doing so, for the words were kindly said, and strange sounds frighten one. He trembled violently and burst into tears. "'My boy,' said the old gentleman, "'you look pale and alarmed. What is the matter?' "'Stand a little away from him, Beadle,' said the other magistrate, laying aside the paper and leaning forward with an expression of interest. Now, boy, tell us what is the matter. Don't be afraid. Oliver fell on his knees, and, clasping his hands together, prayed that they would order him back to the dark room, that they would starve him, beat him, kill him if they pleased, rather than send him away with that dreadful man. "'Well,' said Mr. Bumble, raising his hands and eyes with most impressive solemnity, "'well, of all the artful and designing orphans that ever I see, Oliver, you are one of the most bare-facedest.' How's your tongue, beadle? said the second old gentleman when Mr Bumble had given vent to this compound adjective. I beg your worship's pardon, said Mr Bumble, incredulous of having heard right. Did your worship speak to me? Yes, how's your tongue? Mr Bumble was stupefied with astonishment. A beadle ordered to hold his tongue? A moral revolution! The old gentleman in the tortoiseshell spectacles looked at his companion. He nodded significantly. "'We refuse to sanction these indentures,' said the old gentleman, tossing aside the piece of parchment as he spoke. "'I hope,' stammered Mr. Limpkins, "'I hope the magistrates will not form the opinion that the authorities have been guilty of any improper conduct on the unsupported testimony of a mere child.' "'The magistrates are not called upon to pronounce any opinion in the matter,' said the second old gentleman sharply. "'Take the boy back to the workhouse and treat him kindly. He seems to want it.' That same evening the gentleman in the white waistcoat most positively and decidedly affirmed not only that Oliver would be hung, but that he would be drawn and quartered into the bargain. Mr. Bumble shook his head with gloomy mystery, and said he wished he might come to God, whereunto Mr. Gamfield replied that he wished he might come to him, which, although he agreed with the beadle in most matters, would seem to be a wish of a totally opposite description. The next morning the public were once again informed that Oliver Twist was again to let, and that five pounds would be paid to anybody who would take possession of him. End of chapter three Chapter four of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines Oliver, being offered another place, makes his first entry into public life. In great families, when an advantageous place cannot be obtained, either in possession, reversion, remainder, or expectancy, for the young man who is growing up, it is a very general custom to send him to sea. The board, in imitation of so wise and salutary an example, took counsel together on the expediency of shipping off Oliver Twist in some small trading-vessel bound to a good unhealthy port. This suggested itself as the very best thing that could possibly be done with him, the probability being that the skipper would flog him to death in a playful mood, some day after dinner, or would knock his brains out with an iron bar, both pastimes being, as is pretty generally known, very favourite and common recreations among gentlemen of that class. The more the case presented itself to the board in this point of view, the more manifold the advantages of the step appeared, so they came to the conclusion that the only way of providing for Oliver effectually was to send him to sea without delay. Mr. Bumble had been despatched to make various preliminary inquiries, with a view of finding out some captain or other who wanted a cabin-boy without any friends, and was returning to the workhouse to communicate the result of his mission when he encountered, at the gate, no less a person than Mr. Sowerberry, the parochial undertaker. Mr. Sowerberry was a tall, gaunt, large-jointed man, attired in a suit of threadbare black, with darned cotton stockings of the same colour, and shoes to answer. His features were not naturally intended to wear a smiling aspect, but he was in general rather given to professional jocosity. His step was elastic, and his face betokened inward pleasantry, as he advanced to Mr. Bumble, and shook him cordially by the hand. "'I've taken the measure of the two women that died last night, Mr. Bumble,' said the undertaker. "'You'll make your fortune, Mr. Sowerberry,' said the beadle, as he thrust his thumb and forefinger into the proffered snuff-box of the undertaker, which was an ingenious little model of a patent coffin. "'I say, you'll make your fortune, Mr. Sowerberry,' repeated Mr. Bumble, tapping the undertaker on the shoulder in a friendly manner with his cane. "'Think so,' said the undertaker, in a tone which half admitted and half disputed the probability of the event. The price is allowed by the board a very small Mr. Bumble. are the coffins,' replied the beadle, with precisely as near an approach to a laugh as a great official ought to indulge in. Mr. Sowerberry was much tickled at this, as of course he ought to be, and laughed a long time without cessation. "'Well, well, Mr. Bumble,' he said at length, "'there's no denying that, since the new system of feeding has come in, "'the coffins are something narrower and more shallow than they used to be. "'But we must have some profit, Mr. Bumble. "'Well-seasoned timber is an expensive article, sir, "'and all the iron handles come by canal from Birmingham.' "'Well, well,' said Mr. Bumble, "Every trade has its drawbacks. "'A fair profit is, of course, allowable.' "'Of course, of course,' replied the undertaker, and if I don't get a profit upon this or that particular article, why, I'll make it up in the long run, you see. <laughs> I "'Just so,' said Mr. Bumble. "'Though I must say,' continued the undertaker, resuming the current of observations which the beadle had interrupted, "'though I must say, Mr. Bumble, that I have to contend against one very great disadvantage, which is that all the stout people go off the quickest.' The people who have been better off, and have paid rates for many years, are the first to sink when they come into the house. And let me tell you, Mr. Bumble, that three or four inches over one's calculation makes a great owl in one's profits, especially when one has a family to provide for sir.' As Mr. Sowerberry said this with the becoming indignation of an ill-used man, and as Mr. Bumble felt that it rather tended to convey a reflection on the honour of the parish, the latter gentleman thought it advisable to change the subject. Oliver Twist, being uppermost in his mind, he made him his theme. by the by, said Mr. Bumble, "'you don't know anybody who wants a boy, do you? A parochial prentice who is at present a dead weight, a millstone, as I may say, round the parochial throat—liberal terms, Mr. Sowerberry, a liberal terms.' As Mr. Bumble spoke he raised his cane to the bill above him, and gave three distinct raps upon the words five pounds which were printed thereon in Roman capitals of gigantic size. "Got so,' said the undertaker, taking Mr. Bumble by the gilt-edged lapel of his official coat. "'That's just the very thing I wanted to speak to you about. "'You know, do me, what a very elegant button this is, Mr. Bumble. "'I never noticed it before.' "'Yes, I think it rather pretty,' said the beadle, glancing proudly downwards at the large brass buttons which embellished his coat. "'The dye is the same as the parochial seal.' The good samaritan healing the sick and bruised man the board presented it to me on new year's morning mr sowerberry i put it on i remember for the first time to attend the inquest on that reduced tradesman who died in a doorway at midnight i recollect said the undertaker the jury brought in died from exposure to the cold and want of the common necessaries of life didn't they mr bumble nodded and they made a special verdict i think said the undertaker by adding some words to the effect that, if the relieving officer had—' "'Tush! Foolery!' interposed the beadle. If the board attended to all the nonsense that ignorant jurymen talk, they'd have enough to do.' "'Very true,' said the undertaker, "'they would, indeed.' "'Juries,' said Mr. Bumble, grasping his cane tightly, as was his wont when working into a passion, "'juries is inedicated, vulgar, grovelling wretches.' "'So they are,' said the undertaker. "'They haven't no more philosophy nor political economy about them than that,' said the beadle, snapping his fingers contemptuously. "'No more they have,' acquiesced the undertaker. "'I despise em, said the beadle, growing very red in the face. "'So do I,' rejoined the undertaker. "'And I only wish we'd a jury of the independent sort in the house for a week or two,' said the beadle, the rules and regulations of the board would soon bring their spirit down for em. "'Let him alone for that,' replied the undertaker. So saying, he smiled approvingly, to calm the rising wrath of the indignant parish officer. Mr. Bumble lifted off his cocked hat, took a handkerchief from the inside of the crown, wiped from his forehead the perspiration which his rage had engendered, fixed the cocked hat on again, and turning to the undertaker, said, in a calmer voice, "'Nibel, what about the boy?' "'Oh,' replied the undertaker, "'why, you know, Mr. Bumble, I pay a good deal towards the poor's rights.' Hem, said mr bumble well well replied the undertaker i was thinking that if i pay so much towards him i have a right to get as much out of them as i can mr bumble and so and so i think i'll take the boy myself mr bumble grasped the undertaker by the arm and led him into the building mr sowerberry was closeted with the board for five minutes and it was arranged that oliver should go to him that evening upon liking a phrase which means in the case of a parish apprentice that if the master find upon a short trial that he can get enough work out of a boy, without putting too much food into him, he shall have him for a term of years to do what he likes with. When little Oliver was taken before the gentlemen that evening, and informed that he was to go that night as general-house lad to a coffin-maker's, and that if he complained of a situation or ever came back to the parish again, he would be sent to sea, there to be drowned or knocked on the head as the case might be, he evinced so little emotion that they, by common consent, pronounced him a hardened young rascal and ordered mr bumble to remove him forthwith now although it was very natural that the board of all people in the world should feel in a great state of virtuous astonishment and horror at the smallest tokens of want of feeling on the part of anybody they were rather out in this particular instance the simple fact was that oliver instead of possessing too little feeling possessed rather too much and was in a fair way of being reduced for life to a state of brutal stupidity and sullenness by the ill-usage he had received. He heard the news of his destination in perfect silence, and having had his luggage put into his hand, which was not very difficult to carry, inasmuch as it was all comprised within the limits of a brown-paper parcel, about half a foot square by three inches deep, he pulled his cap over his eyes and once more attaching himself to Mr. Bumble's coat-cuff, was led away by that dignitary to a new scene of suffering. For some time Mr. Bumble drew Oliver along without notice or remark, for the beadle carried his head very erect, as a beadle always should, and, it being a windy day, little Oliver was completely enshrouded by the skirts of Mr. Bumble's coat as they blew open, and disclosed to great advantage his flapped waistcoat and drab, plush knee-breeches. As they drew near to their destination, however, Mr. Bumble thought it expedient to look down, and see that the boy was in good order for inspection by his new master, which he accordingly did, with a fit and becoming air of gracious patronage. "'Oliver,' said Mr. Bumble. "'Yes, sir,' replied Oliver, in a low, tremulous voice. "'Pull that cap off your eyes, and hold your head up, sir.' Although Oliver did as he was desired at once, and passed the back of his unoccupied hand briskly across his eyes. He left a tear in them when he looked up at his conductor. As Mr. Bumble gazed sternly upon him, it rolled down his cheek. It was followed by another and another. The child made a strong effort, but it was an unsuccessful one. Withdrawing his other hand from Mr. Bumble's, he covered his face with both, and wept until the tears sprung out from between his chin and bony fingers. "'Well!' exclaimed Mr. Bumble, stopping short, and darting at his little charge a look of intense malignity well of all the ungratefulest and worst disposed boys as ever i see oliver you are the-don't uh, no, no sir sobbed oliver clinging to the hand which held the well-known cane no no sir i will be good indeed 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 i will sir i am a very little boy and it is so-so-so what inquired mr bumble in amazement so lonely sir so very lonely cried the child everybody hates me. Oh, sir, pray don't be cross to me.' The child beat his hand upon his heart and looked in his companion's face, with tears of real agony. Mr. Bumble regarded Oliver's piteous and helpless look with some astonishment for a few seconds, hemmed three or four times in a husky manner, and, after muttering something about that troublesome cough, bade Oliver dry his eyes and be a good boy. Then, once more taking his hand, he walked on with him in silence. The undertaker, who had just put up the shutters of his shop, was making some entries in his day-book by the light of a most appropriate dismal candle, when Mr. Bumble entered. "Aha," said the undertaker, looking up from the book, and pausing in the middle of a word. "'Is that you, Bumble?' "'No one else, Mr. Sowerberry,' replied the beadle. "'Here I've brought the boy.' Oliver made a bow. "'Oh, that's the boy, is it?' said the undertaker, raising the candle above his head to get a better view of Oliver. Mrs. Sowerberry, will you have the goodness to come here for a moment, my dear?" Mrs. Sowerberry emerged from the little room behind the shop, and presented the form of a short, thin, squeezed-up woman, with a vixenish countenance. "'My dear,' said Mr. Sowerberry deferentially, "'this is the boy from the workhouse that I told you of.' Oliver bowed again. "'Dear me,' said the undertaker's wife, "'is very small.' why he is rather small replied mr bumble looking at oliver as if it were his fault that he was no bigger he is small there's no denying it but he'll grow mrs sowerberry he'll grow ah i dare say he will replied the lady pettishly on our victuals and our drink i see no saving in parish children not i for they always cost more to keep than they're worth however men always think they know best there get downstairs little bag of bones with this the undertaker's wife opened the side-door, and pushed Oliver down a steep flight of stairs into a stone cell, damp and dark, forming the ante-room to the coal-cellar and denominated kitchen, wherein sat a slatternly girl in shoes down at heel, and blue worsted stockings very much out of repair.
1: "'Here,
0: yeah, Charlotte,' said Mrs. Sowerberry, who had followed Oliver down, "'give this boy some of the coal-bits they were put by for trip. He hasn't come home since the morning, so he may go without them.' I dare say the boy isn't too dainty to eat them, are you, boy?" Oliver, whose eyes had glistened at the mention of meat, and who was trembling with eagerness to devour it, replied in the negative, and a plateful of coarse broken victuals was set before him. I wish some well-fed philosopher, whose meat and drink turned to gall within him, whose blood is ice, whose heart is iron, could have seen Oliver Twist clutching at the dainty viands that the dog had neglected. I wish he could have witnessed the horrible avidity with which Oliver tore the bits asunder with all the ferocity of famine. There is only one thing I should like better, and that would be to see the philosopher making the same sort of meal himself, with the same relish. "'Well,' said the undertaker's wife, when Oliver had finished his supper, which he had regarded in silent horror, and with fearful auguries of his future appetite, "'have you done?' There being nothing eatable within reach, Oliver replied in the affirmative. "'Then come with me,' said Mrs. Sowerberry, taking up a dim and dirty lamp, and leading the way upstairs. "'Your bed's under the counter. You don't mind sleeping among the coffins, I suppose? But it doesn't much matter whether you do or don't, for you can't sleep anywhere else. Come on, don't keep me here all night.' Oliver lingered no longer, but meekly followed his new mistress. End of chapter 4 Chapter five of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tige Hines. Oliver mingles with new associates. Going to a funeral for the first time, he forms an unfavourable notion of his master's business. Oliver, being left to himself in the undertaker's shop, set the lamp down on a workman's bench and gazed timidly about him with a feeling of awe and dread, which many people a good deal older than he will be at no loss to understand. An unfinished coffin on black trestles which stood in the middle of the shop looked so gloomy and deathlike that a cold tremble came over him every time his eyes wandered in the direction of the dismal object, from which he almost expected to see some frightful form slowly rear its head, to drive him mad with terror. Against the wall were ranged, in regular array, a long row of elm-boards cut in the same shape, looking in the dim light like high-shouldered ghosts with their hands in their breeches' pockets. Coffin-plates, elm-chips, bright-headed nails, and shreds of black cloth lay scattered on the floor, and the wall behind the counter was ornamented with a lively representation of two mutes in very stiff neck-cloths on duty at a large private door, with a hearse drawn by four black steeds approaching in the distance. The shop was close and hot, the atmosphere seemed tainted with the smell of coffins. The recess beneath the counter in which his flock mattress was thrust looked like a grave. Nor were these the only dismal feelings which depressed Oliver. He was alone in a strange place, and we all know how chilled and desolate the best of us will sometimes feel in such a situation. The boy had no friends to care for, or to care for him. The regret of no recent separation was fresh in his mind. The absence of no loved and well-remembered face sank heavily into his heart. But his heart was heavy notwithstanding, and he wished, as he crept into his narrow bed, that that were his coffin, and that he could be lain in a calm and lasting sleep in the churchyard-ground, with the tall grass waving gently above his head, and the sound of the old deep bell to soothe him in his sleep." Oliver was awakened in the morning by a loud kicking at the outside of the shop-door, which, before he could huddle on his clothes, was repeated in an angry and impetuous manner about twenty-five times. When he began to undo the chain, the legs desisted, and a voice began. "'Open the door, will you?' cried the voice which belonged to the legs which had kicked at the door. "'I will directly, sir,' replied Oliver, undoing the chain and turning the key. I suppose you're the new boy, ain't you? said the voice through the keyhole. Yes, sir, replied Oliver. How old are you? inquired the voice. Ten, sir, replied Oliver. Then I'll whop you when I get in, said the voice. You just see if I don't, that's all my work is brat. And having made this obliging promise, the voice began to whistle. Oliver had been too often subjected to the process to which the very expressive monosyllable just recorded bears reference, to entertain the smallest doubt that the owner of the voice, whoever he might be, would redeem his pledge most honourably. He drew back the bolts with a trembling hand and opened the door. For a second or two Oliver glanced up the street and down the street and over the way, impressed with the belief that the unknown who had addressed him through the keyhole had walked a few paces off to warm himself, for nobody did he see but a big charity-boy sitting on a post in front of the house eating a slice of bread-and-butter which he cut into wedges the size of his mouth with a clasp-knife and then consumed with great dexterity i beg your pardon sir said oliver at length seeing that no other visitor made his appearance did you knock i kicked replied the charity-boy did you want a coffin sir inquired oliver innocently at this the charity-boy looked monstrous fierce, and said that Oliver would want one before long, if he cut jokes with his superiors in that way.
1: "'You don't know who I am, I
0: suppose, Workus,' said the charity-boy, in continuation, descending from the top of the post meanwhile with edifying gravity. "'No, sir,' rejoined Oliver. "'I'm misting now a said the charity-boy, and you're under me. Take down the shutters, you idle young duffian.' With this Mr. Claypole administered a kick to Oliver, and entered the shop with a dignified air, which did him great credit. It is difficult for a large-headed, small-eyed youth of lumbering make and heavy countenance to look dignified under any circumstances, but it is more especially so when superadded to these personal attractions are a red nose and yellow smalls. Oliver, having taken down the shutters, and broken a pane of glass in his effort to stagger away beneath the weight of the first one to a small court at the side of the house, in which they were kept during the day, was graciously assisted by Noah, who, having consoled him with the assurance that he'd catch it, condescended to help him. Mr. Sowerberry came down soon after. Shortly afterwards Mrs. Sowerberry appeared. Oliver, having caught it in fulfilment of Noah's prediction followed that young gentleman down the stairs to breakfast come near the fire noah said charlotte i saved a nice little bit of bacon for you from master's breakfast oliver shut that door at mr noah's back and take them bits that i've put on the cover of the bread-pan there's your tea take it away to that box and drink it there and make haste for they'll want you to mind the shop d'ye hear d'ye hear Workus?" said noah claypole lord noah said charlotte what a rum creature you are "'Why don't you let the boy alone?' "'Let him alone,' said Noah. "'Why, everybody lets him alone enough for the matter of that. "'Neither his father nor his mother would ever interfere with him. "'All his relations let him have his own way pretty well. "'Eh, Charlotte?' (laughs) "'Oh, you queer soul!' said Charlotte, bursting into a hearty laugh, "'in which she was joined by Noah, "'after which they both looked scornfully at poor Oliver Twist, "'as he sat shivering on the box in the coldest corner of the room.' and ate the stale pieces which had been specially reserved for him. Noah was a charity boy, but not a workhouse orphan. No chance child was he, for he could trace his genealogy all the way back to his parents, who lived hard by—his mother being a washerwoman, and his father a drunken soldier discharged with a wooden leg, and a diurnal pension of two-pence-halfpenny and an unstatable fraction. The shop-boys in the neighbourhood had long been in the habit of branding Noah in the public streets with the ignominious epithets, leathers, charity and the like, and Noah had borne them without reply. But now that fortune had cast in his way a nameless orphan, at whom even the meanest could point the finger of scorn, he retorted on him with interest. This affords charming food for contemplation. It shows us what a beautiful thing human nature may be made to be and how impartially the same amiable qualities are developed in the finest lord and the dirtiest charity-boy. Oliver had been sojourning at the undertaker some three weeks or a month. Mr. and Mrs. Sowerberry, the shop being shut up, were taking their supper in the little back parlour, when Mr. Sowerberry, after several deferential glances at his wife, said, My dear—he was going to say more, but Mrs. Sowerberry, looking up with a peculiarly unpropitious aspect, he stopped short— "'Well?' said Mrs. Sowerberry, sharply. "'Nothing, my dear, nothing,' said Mr. Sowerberry. "'Oh, you brute!' said Mrs. Sowerberry. "'Not at all, my dear,' said Mr. Sowerberry, humbly. "'I thought you didn't want to hear, my dear. I was only going to say—' "'Oh, don't tell me what you were going to say,' interposed Mrs. Sowerberry. "'I am nobody. Don't consult me, pray. I don't want to intrude upon your secrets.' As Mrs. Sowerberry said this, she gave an hysterical laugh which threatened violent consequences. Uh, "'But, my dear,' said Sowerberry, "'I want to ask your advice.' "'No, no, don't ask mine,' replied Mrs. Sowerberry, in an affecting manner. Ask somebody else's.' Here there was another hysterical laugh which frightened Mr. Sowerberry very much. This is a very common and much-approved matrimonial course of treatment, which is often very effective. It at once reduced Mr. Sowerberry to begging as a special favour to be allowed to say what Mrs. Sowerberry was most curious to hear. After a short duration the permission was most graciously conceded. "'It's only about young Twist, my dear,' said Mr. Sowerberry. "'A very good-looking boy, that, my dear.' "'He need be, for he eats enough,' observed the lady. "'There's an expression of melancholy in his face, my dear,' resumed Mr. Sowerberry, "'which is very interesting. He would make a delightful mute, my love.' Mrs. Sowerberry looked up with an expression of considerable wonderment. Mr. Sowerberry remarked it, and, without allowing time for any observation on the good lady's part, proceeded, "'I don't mean a regular mute to attend grown-up people, my dear, but only for children's practice. It would be very new to have a mute in proportion, my dear. You may depend upon it. It would have a superb effect.' Mrs. Sowerberry, who had a good deal of taste in the undertaking way, was much struck by the novelty of this idea but, as it would have been compromising her dignity to have said so under existing circumstances, she merely inquired with much sharpness why such an obvious suggestion had not presented itself to her husband's mind before. Mr. Sowerberry rightly construed this as an acquiescence in his proposition. It was speedily determined, therefore, that Oliver should be at once initiated into the mysteries of the trade, and with this view, that he should accompany his master on the very next occasion of his services being required. The occasion was not long in coming. Half an hour after breakfast next morning Mr. Bumble entered the shop, and, supporting his cane against the counter, drew forth his large leathern pocket-book, from which he selected a small scrap of paper, which he handed over to Sowerberry. "'Aha!' said the undertaker, glancing over it with a lively countenance. "'An order for a coffin, eh?' "'For a coffin first, and a parochial funeral afterwards.' replied mr bumble, fastening the strap of the leathern pocket-book, which, like himself, was very corpulent. "'Bayton,' said the undertaker, looking from the scrap of paper to mr bumble. I never heard the name before. Bumble shook his head as he replied, Obstinate people, mr sowerberry, very obstinate. Proud, too, I'm afraid, sir. Proud, eh? exclaimed mr sowerberry with a sneer. Come, that's too much. Oh, it's sickening, replied the beadle. "'Antimonial, Mr. Sowerberry.' "'So it is,' acquiesced the undertaker. "'We only heard of the family the night before last,' said the beadle. "'Now we shouldn't have known anything about them then, only a woman who lodges in the same house made an application to the parochial committee for them to send the parochial surgeon to see a woman as was very bad. He had gone out to dinner, but his prentice, which is a very clever lad, sent him some medicine in a blacking bottle offhand.' ah there's promptness said the undertaker promptness indeed replied the beadle but what's the consequence what's the ungrateful behaviour of these rebels sir why the husband sends back word that the medicine won't suit his wife's complaint and so she shan't take it Says she shan't take it sir Good, strong, of awesome medicine, as was given with great success to two Irish labourers and a coal only a week before, sent him for nothing, with a blacking bottle in, and he sends back word that she shan't take it, sir. As the atrocity presented itself to Mr. Bumble's mind in full force, he struck the counter sharply with his cane, and became flushed with indignation. Well, said the undertaker, I never did. Never did, sir ejaculated the beadle no no nobody never did but now she's dead and we got to bury her and that's the direction and the sooner it's done the better thus saying mr bumble put on his cocked hat wrong side first in a fever of parochial excitement and flounced out of the shop why he was so angry oliver that he forgot even to ask after you said mr sowerberry looking after the beadle as he strode down the street yes sir replied Oliver, who had carefully kept himself out of sight during the interview, and who was shaking from head to foot at the mere recollection of the sound of Mr. Bumble's voice. He needn't have taken the trouble to shrink from Mr. Bumble's glance, however, for that functionary, on whom the prediction of the gentleman in the white waistcoat had made a very strong impression, thought that now the undertaker had got Oliver upon trial the subject was better avoided until such time as he should be firmly bound for seven years, and all danger of his being returned upon the hands of the parish should be thus effectually and legally overcome." "'Well,' said Mr. Sowerberry, taking up his hat, "'the sooner this job is done the better, now i look after the shop. Oliver, put on your cap and come with me.' Oliver obeyed, and followed his master on his professional mission. They walked on for some time through the most crowded and densely-inhabited part of the town, and then, striking down a narrow street more dirty and miserable than any they had yet passed through, paused to look for the house which was the object of their search. The houses on either side were high and large, but very old, and tenanted by people of the poorest class as their neglected appearance would have sufficiently denoted, without the concurrent testimony afforded by the squalid looks of the few men and women who, with folded arms and bodies half-doubled, occasionally skulked along. A great many of the tenements had shop-fronts, but these were fast closed and mouldering away, only the upper rooms being inhabited. Some houses, which had become insecure from age and decay were prevented from falling into the street by huge beams of wood reared against the walls, and firmly planted in the road. But even these crazy dens seemed to have been selected as the nightly haunts of some homeless wretches, for many of the rough boards which supplied the place of door and window were wrenched from their positions, to afford an aperture wide enough for the passage of a human body. The kennel was stagnant and filthy. The very rats, which here and there lay putrefying in its rottenness, were hideous with famine. There was neither knocker nor bell-handle on the open door where Oliver and his master stopped, so, groping his way cautiously through the dark passage, and bidding Oliver keep close to him and not be afraid, the undertaker mounted to the top of the first flight of stairs. Stumbling against the door on the landing, he rapped at it with his knuckles. It was opened by a young girl of thirteen or fourteen. The undertaker at once saw enough of what the room contained to know it was the apartment to which he had been directed. He stepped in. Oliver followed him. There was no fire in the room, but a man was crouching mechanically over the empty stove. An old woman, too, had drawn a low stool to the cold hearth and was sitting beside him. There were some ragged children in another corner, and in a small recess opposite the door there lay upon the ground something covered with an old blanket. Oliver shuddered as he cast his eyes towards the place, and crept involuntarily closer to his master, for though it was covered up, the boy felt that it was a corpse. The man's face was thin and very pale. His hair and beard were grisly, his eyes were bloodshot. The old woman's face was wrinkled, her two remaining teeth protruded over her under-lip, and her eyes were bright and piercing. Oliver was afraid to look at either her or the man they seemed so like the rats he had seen outside nobody shall go nearer said the man starting fiercely up as the undertaker approached the recess keep back damn you keep back if you've a life to lose nonsense my good man said the undertaker who was pretty well used to misery in all its shapes nonsense i tell you said the man clenching his hands and stamping furiously on the floor i tell you i won't have her put into the ground she couldn't rest there the worms would worry her not eat her she's so worn away the undertaker offered no reply to this raving but producing a tape from his pocket knelt down for a moment by the side of the body Ah," said the man bursting into tears and sinking on his knees at the feet of the dead woman kneel down kneel down kneel round there every one of you and mark my words i say she was starved to death i never knew how bad she was till the fever came upon her and then her bones were starting through the skin there was neither fire nor candle she died in the dark in the dark she couldn't even see her children's faces though we heard her gasping out their names i begged for her in the streets and they sent me to prison when i came back she was dying and all the blood of my heart is dried up for they starved her to death i swear it before the god that saw it they starved her he twined his hands in his hair and with a loud scream rolled grovelling upon the floor his eyes fixed and the foam covering his lips The terrified children cried bitterly, but the old woman, who had hitherto remained as quiet as if she had been wholly deaf to all that passed, menaced them into silence. Having unloosened the cravat of the man who still remained extended on the ground, she tottered towards the undertaker.
1: "'She was my daughter,'
0: said the old woman, nodding her head in the direction of the corpse and speaking with an idiotic leer, more ghastly than even the presence of death in such a place. Lord, Lord! Well, it is strange that I, who gave birth to her and was a woman then, should be alive and merry now, and she lying there so cold and stiff. Lord, Lord! Think of it—it's as good as a play, as good as a play. As the wretched creature mumbled and chuckled in her hideous merriment, the undertaker turned to go away. Stop, stop! said the old woman in a loud whisper.
1: Will she be buried tomorrow? Or next day, or to-night. I laid her out, and I must walk, you know. Send me a large cloak, a good warm one, for it's bitter cold. We should have cake and wine, too, before we go. Never mind, send some bread, only a loaf of bread and a cup of water. Shall we have some bread, dear?'
0: she said eagerly, catching at the undertaker's coat as he once more moved towards the door. "'Yes, yes,' said the undertaker, of course, anything you like.' He disengaged himself from the old woman's grasp, and, drawing Oliver after him, hurried away. The next day, the family having been meanwhile relieved with a half-quartern loaf and a piece of cheese, left with them by Mr. Bumble himself, Oliver and his master returned to the miserable abode, where Mr. Bumble had already arrived, accompanied by four men from the workhouse, who were to act as bearers. An old black cloak had been thrown over the rags of the old woman and the man and the bare-coffin, having been screwed down, was hoisted on the shoulders of the bearers and carried into the street. "'Now you must put your best leg foremost, old lady,' whispered Sowerberry in the old woman's ear. "'We are rather late, and it won't do to keep the clergyman waiting. Move on, my men, as quick as you like.' Thus directed, the bearers trotted on under their light burden, and the two mourners kept as near them as they could. Mr. Bumble and Sowerberry walked at a good smart pace in front and Oliver, whose legs were not so long as his master's, ran by the side. There was not so great a necessity for hurrying as Mr. Sowerberry had anticipated, however, for when they reached the obscure corner of the churchyard in which the nettles grew, and where the parish graves were made, the clergyman had not arrived, and the clerk, who was sitting by the vestry-room fire, seemed to think it by no means improbable that it might be an hour or so before he came. So they put the bier on the brink of the grave, and the two mourners waited patiently in the damp clay, with a cold rain drizzling down, while the ragged boys whom the spectacle had attracted into the churchyard played a noisy game at hide-and-seek among the tombstones, or varied their amusements by jumping backwards and forwards over the coffin. Mr. Sowerberry and Bumble, being personal friends of the clerk, sat by the fire with him and read the paper. At length, after a lapse of something more than an hour, Mr. Bumble and Mr. Sowerberry and the clerk were seen running towards the grave. Immediately afterwards the clergyman appeared, putting on his surplice as he came along. Mr. Bumble then thrashed a boy or two to keep up appearances, and the reverend gentleman, having read as much of the burial service as could be compressed into four minutes, gave a surplice to the clerk and walked away again. "'Now, Bill,' said Sowerberry to the gravedigger, "'fill up.' it was no very difficult task for the grave was so full that the uppermost coffin was within a few feet of the surface the gravedigger shovelled in the earth stamped it loosely down with his feet shouldered his spade and walked off followed by the boys who murmured very loud complaints at the fun being over so soon come my good fellow said bumble tapping the man on the back they want to shut up the yard the man who had never once moved since he had taken his station by the graveside started, raised his head, stared at the person who had addressed him, walked forward for a few paces, and fell down in a swoon. The crazy old woman was too much occupied in bewailing the loss of her cloak, which the undertaker had taken off, to pay him any attention. So they threw a can of cold water over him, and when he came to, saw him safely out of the churchyard, locked the gate, and departed on their different ways. Well, Oliver? said Mr. Sowerberry, as they walked home. "'How do you like it?' "'Pretty well, thank you, sir,' replied Oliver, with considerable hesitation. "'Not very much, sir.' "'Nah, you'll get used to it in time, Oliver,' said Sowerberry. "'Nothing when you are used to it, my boy.' Oliver wondered, in his own mind, whether it had taken a very long time to get Mr. Sowerberry used to it. But he thought it better not to ask the question, and walked back to the shop, Thinking over all he had seen and heard. End of chapter five. Chapter six of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tige Hines. Oliver, being goaded by the taunts of Noah, rouses into action and rather astonishes him. The month's trial over, Oliver was formally apprenticed. It was a nice sickly season just at this time. In commercial phrase, coffins were looking up, and in the course of a few weeks Oliver acquired a great deal of experience. The success of Mr. Sowerberry's ingenious speculation exceeded even his most sanguine hopes. The oldest inhabitants recollected no period at which measles had been so prevalent, or so fatal to infant existence and many were the mournful processions which little oliver headed in a hatband reaching down to his knees to the indescribable admiration and emotion of all the mothers in the town as oliver accompanied his master in most of his adult expeditions too in order that he might acquire that equanimity of demeanour and full command of nerve which was essential to a finished undertaker He had many opportunities of observing the beautiful resignation and fortitude with which some strong-minded people bear their trials and losses. For instance, when Sowerberry had an order for the burial of some rich old lady or gentleman, who was surrounded by a great number of nephews and nieces, who had been perfectly inconsolable during the previous illness, and whose grief had been wholly irrepressible even on the most public occasions, they would be as happy among themselves as need be quite cheerful and contented, conversing together with as much freedom and gaiety as if nothing whatever had happened to disturb them. Husbands, too, bore the loss of their wives with the most heroic calmness. Wives, again, put on weeds for their husbands, as if so far from grieving in the garb of sorrow. They had made up their minds to render it as becoming and attractive as possible. It was observable, too, that ladies and gentlemen, who were in passions of anguish during the ceremony of interment, recovered almost as soon as they reached home, and became quite composed before the tea-drinking was over. All this was very pleasant and improving to see, and Oliver beheld it with great admiration. That Oliver Twist was moved to resignation by the example of these good people I cannot, although I am his biographer, undertake to affirm with any degree of confidence. But I can most distinctly say that for many months, he continued meekly to submit to the domination and ill-treatment of Noah Claypole, who used him far worse than before, now that his jealousy was roused by seeing the new boy promoted to the black stick and hat-band, while he, the old one, remained stationary in the muffin-cap and leathers. Charlotte treated him ill, because Noah did, and Mrs. Sowerberry was his decided enemy, because Mr. Sowerberry was disposed to be his friend. So between these three on one side, and the glut of funerals on the other, Oliver was not altogether as comfortable as the hungry pig was when he was shut up by mistake in the grain department of a brewery. And now I come to a very important passage in Oliver's history, for I have to record an act, slight and unimportant perhaps in appearance, but which indirectly produced a material change in all his future prospects and proceedings. One day Oliver and Noah had descended into the kitchen at the usual dinner-hour to banquet upon a small joint of mutton, a pound and a half of the worst end of the neck, when Charlotte, being called out of the way, there ensued a brief interval of time which Noah Claypole, being hungry and vicious, considered he could not possibly devote to a worthier purpose than aggravating and tantalising young Oliver Twist. Intent upon this innocent amusement, noah put his feet on the tablecloth and pulled oliver's hair and twitched his ears and expressed his opinion that he was a sneak and furthermore announced his intention of coming to see him hanged whenever that desirable event should take place and entered upon various topics of petty annoyance like a malicious and ill-conditioned charity boy as he was but none of these taunts producing the desired effect of making oliver cry noah attempted to be more facetious still and in this attempt did what many small wits with far greater reputations than Noah sometimes do to this day when they want to be funny. He got rather personal. "'Workus,' said Noah, "'how's your mother?' "'She's dead,' replied Oliver. "'Don't you say anything about her to me.' Oliver's colour rose as he said this, he breathed quickly and there was a curious working of the mouth and nostrils, which Mr. Claypole thought must be the immediate precursor of a violent fit of crying. Under this impression he returned to the charge. "'What does ye die of, Wilkes?' said Noah. "'Of a broken heart, some of her old nurses told me,' replied Oliver, more as if he were talking to himself than answering Noah. "'I think I know what it must be to die of that.' "Tal the all, lol lol, rightful air, said noah as a tear rolled down oliver's cheek what sets you a snivelling now not you replied oliver hastily brushing the tear away don't think it oh not me eh?" sneered noah no not you replied oliver sharply there that's enough don't say anything more to me about her you better not better not exclaimed noah well better not workers don't be impudent your mother too she was a nice, and she was—oh, la. And here Noah nodded his head expressively, and curled up as much of his small, red nose as muscular action could collect together for the occasion. "'You know, Workus,' continued Noah, emboldened by Oliver's silence, and speaking in a jeering tone of affected pity—of all tones the most annoying. "'You know, Workus, it can't be helped now, and, of course, you couldn't help it then,
1: and I am sorry for it, and I'm sure we all are, and pity her very much. "'But you must know, workers, your mother was a regular right-down badden. "'What did you say?'
0: inquired Oliver, looking up very quickly. "'A regular right-down baden workers,' replied Noah coolly. "'And it's a great deal better, workers, that she died when she did, or else she'd have been hard labouring in the bridewell, or transported, or hung, which is more likely than either, isn't it?' Crimson with fury, Oliver started up, overthrew the chair and table, seized Noah by the throat, shook him in the violence of his rage, till his teeth chattered in his head, and, collecting his whole force into one heavy blow, felled him to the ground. A minute ago the boy had looked the quiet, mild, dejected creature that harsh treatment had made him. But his spirit was roused at last the cruel insult to his dead mother had set his blood on fire his breast heaved his attitude was erect his eye bright and vivid his whole person changed as he stood glaring over the cowardly tormentor who now lay crouching at his feet and defied him with an energy he had never known before
1: you murder me
0: blubbered noah
1: charlotte missus is the new boy a murdering of me help help oliver's gone mad charlotte
0: Noah's shouts were responded to by a loud scream from Charlotte, and a louder from Mrs. Sowerberry, the former of whom rushed into the kitchen by a side-door, while the latter paused on the staircase till she was quite certain that it was consistent with the preservation of human life, to come further down. "'Oh, you little wretch!' screamed Charlotte, seizing Oliver with her utmost force, which was about equal to that of a moderately strong man in particularly good training.
1: "'Oh, you little ungrateful, murderous, horrid villain!'
0: and between every syllable Charlotte gave Oliver a blow with all her might, accompanying it with a scream for the benefit of society. Charlotte's fist was by no means a light one, but lest it should not be effectual in calming Oliver's wrath, Mrs. Sowerberry plunged into the kitchen and assisted to hold him with one hand, while she scratched his face with the other. In this favourable position of affairs Noah rose from the ground and pummelled him behind. This was rather too violent exercise to last long. When they were all wearied out and could tear and beat no longer, they dragged Oliver, struggling and shouting, but nothing daunted, into the dust-cellar, and there locked him up. This being done, Mrs. Sowerberry sunk into a chair, and burst into tears.
1: "'Bless her, she's going off,'
0: said Charlotte.
1: "'A glass of water, Noah, dear. make haste.' "'Oh, Charlotte!'
0: said Mrs. Sowerberry, speaking as well as she could, through a deficiency of breath and a sufficiency of cold water, which Noah had poured over her head and shoulders
1: oh charlotte what a mercy we have not all been murdered in our beds ah a mercy indeed ma'am was the reply i only hope this will teach master not to have any more of those dreadful creatures that are born to be murderers and robbers from the very cradle poor noah he was all but killed ma'am when i come in poor fellow
0: said mrs sowerberry looking piteously on the charity boy noah whose top waistcoat button might have been somewhere on a level with the crown of oliver's head rubbed his eyes with the inside of his wrists while this commiseration was bestowed upon him, and performed some affecting tears and sniffs. "'What's to be done?' exclaimed Mrs. Sowerberry. "'Your master's not
1: at home. There's not a man in the house, and he'll kick that door down in ten minutes.'
0: Oliver's vigorous plunges against the bit of timber in question rendered this occurrence highly probable. "'Dear, dear, I don't know, ma'am,' said Charlotte, unless we send for the police officers. "'Or the milling,
1: Terry?'
0: suggested Mr. Claypole no no said mrs sowerberry bethinking herself of oliver's old friend run to mr bumble noah and tell him to come here
1: directly and not to lose a minute never mind your cap make haste you can hold a knife to that black guy as you run along it'll keep the swelling down noah stopped to make no reply but
0: started off at his fullest speed and very much it astonished the people who were out walking to see a charity-boy tearing through the streets pell-mell with no cap on his head and a clasp-knife at his eye End of chapter six Chapter seven of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This Librivox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. Oliver continues refractory. Noah Claypole ran along the streets at his swiftest pace and paused not once for breath until he reached the workhouse gate. Having rested here for a minute or so, to collect a good burst of sobs and an imposing show of tears and terror, he knocked loudly at the wicket, and presented such a rueful face to the aged pauper who opened it, that even he, who saw nothing but rueful faces about him at the best of times, started back in astonishment. "'Why, what's the matter with the boy?' said the old pauper. "'Mr. Bumble!
1: Mr. Bumble!'
0: cried Noah, with well-affected dismay, and in tones so loud and agitated that they not only caught the ear of Mr. Bumble himself, who happened to be hard by, but alarmed him so much that he rushed into the yard without his cocked hat, which is a very curious and remarkable circumstance, as showing that even a beadle acted upon sudden and powerful impulse, may be afflicted with a momentary visitation of loss of self-possession, and forgetfulness of personal dignity.' "'Ow, Mr. Bumble, sir,' said Noah. "'Oliver, sir, Oliver has—' "'What, what?' interposed Mr. Bumble, with a gleam of pleasure in his metallic eyes. Uh, "'Not run away. He hasn't run away, has he, Noah?'
1: "'No, sir, no, not run away. But he's turned vicious,' replied Noah. "'He tried to murder me, sir, and then he tried to murder Charlotte, and then Mrs. "'Ow, what a dreadful pain it is! Such agony, please, sir!'
0: And here Noah writhed and twisted his body into an extensive variety of eel-like positions, thereby giving Mr. Bumble to understand that from the very violent and sanguinary onset of Oliver Twist he had sustained severe internal injury and damage, from which he was at that moment suffering the acutest torture. When Noah saw that the intelligence he communicated perfectly paralysed Mr. Bumble, he imparted additional effect thereunto by bewailing his dreadful wounds ten times louder than before and when he observed a gentleman in a white waistcoat crossing the yard he was more tragic in his lamentations than ever rightly conceiving it highly expedient to attract the notice and rouse the indignation of the gentleman aforesaid the gentleman's notice was very soon attracted for he had not walked three paces when he turned angrily round and inquired what that young cur was howling for and why mr bumble did not favour him with something which would render the series of vocular exclamations so designated an involuntary process "'It's a poor boy from the free-school, sir,' replied Mr. Bumble. "'It has been nearly murdered—all but murdered, sir, by young twist.' "'By Jove!' exclaimed the gentleman in the white waistcoat, stopping short. "'I knew it. I felt a strange presentiment from the very first that that audacious young savage would come to be hung.' "'He is likewise attempted, sir, to murder the female servant,' said Mr. Bumble, with a face of ashy paleness. "'And his missus?' interposed Mr. Claypole. "'And his master, too, I think you said, Noah.' added Mr. Bumble.
1: "'No, he's out, or he would have murdered him,' replied Noah. "'He said he wanted to.' "'Ah,
0: said he wanted to, did he, my boy?' inquired the gentleman in the white waistcoat. "'Yes, sir,' replied Noah,
1: "'and please, sir, Mrs. wants to know whether Mr. Bumble can spare time to step up there directly and flog him, cos Master's out.'
0: "'Certainly, my boy, certainly,' said the gentleman in the white waistcoat, smiling benignly and patting Noah's head, which was about three inches higher than his own you're a good boy, a very good boy. Here's a penny for you. Bumble, just step up to Sowerberry's with your cane, and see what's best to be done. Don't spare him, Bumble.' "'No, I will not, sir,' replied the beadle, adjusting the wax-end which was twisted round the bottom of his cane, for purposes of parochial flagellation. "'Tell Sowerberry not to spare him, either. They'll never do anything with him without stripes and bruises,' said the gentleman in the white waistcoat. "I'll take care, sir,' replied the beadle and the cocked-hat and cane having been by this time adjusted to their owner's satisfaction, Mr. Bumble and Noah Claypole betook themselves with all speed to the undertaker's shop. Here the position of affairs had not at all improved. Sowerberry had not yet returned, and Oliver continued to kick with undiminished vigour at the cellar door. The accounts of his ferocity as related by Mrs. Sowerberry and Charlotte were of so startling a nature that Mr. Bumble judged it prudent to parley before opening the door. With this view he gave a kick at the outside, by way of prelude, and then, applying his mouth to the keyhole, said, in a deep and impressive tone, "'Oliver?' "'Come, you let me out,' replied Oliver, from the inside. "'Do you know this ear voice, Oliver?' said Mr. Bumble. "'Yes,' replied Oliver. "'Ain't you afraid of it, sir? Ain't you a trembling while I speak, sir?' said Mr. Bumble. "'No,' replied Oliver, boldly. An answer so different from the one he had expected to elicit, and was in the habit of receiving, staggered Mr. Bumble not a little. He stepped back from the keyhole, drew himself up to his full height, and looked from one to another of the three bystanders in mute astonishment. "'Oh, you know, Mr. Bumble, he must be mad,' said Mrs. Sowerberry. "'No boy in half his senses could venture to speak so to you.' "'It's not madness, ma'am,' replied Bumble, after a few moments of deep meditation. "'It's meat!' What exclaimed Mrs. Sowerberry? Meat, ma'am. Meat, replied Bumble with stern emphasis. You've overfed him, ma'am. You've raised an artificial soul and spirit in him, ma'am, unbecoming a person of his condition. As the board, Mrs. Sowerberry, who are practical philosophers, will tell you, what have paupers to do with soul or spirit? It's quite enough that we let them have live bodies. If you'd kept the boy on gruel, ma'am, this would never have happened. Dear, dear ejaculated Mrs. Sowerberry, piously raising her eyes to the kitchen ceiling. This comes of being liberal! The liberality of Mrs. Sowerberry to Oliver had consisted of a profuse bestowal upon him of all the dirty odds and ends which nobody else would eat. So there was a great deal of meekness and self-devotion in her voluntarily remaining under Mr. Bumble's heavy accusation, of which, to do her justice, she was wholly innocent in thought, word, or deed said mr bumble when the lady brought her eyes down to earth again the only thing that can be done now that i know of is to leave him in the cellar for a day or so till he's a little starved down and then to take him out and to keep him on gruel all through the apprenticeship he comes of a bad family excitable natures mrs sowerberry both the nurse and the doctor said that that mother of his made her way here against difficulties and pain that would have killed any well-disposed woman weeks before At this point of Mr. Bumble's discourse Oliver, just hearing enough to know that some allusion was being made to his mother, recommenced kicking, with a violence that rendered every other sound inaudible. Sowerberry returned at this juncture. Oliver's offence having been explained to him, with such exaggerations as the ladies thought best calculated to rouse his ire, he unlocked the cellar-door in a twinkling, and dragged his rebellious apprentice out by the collar. Oliver's clothes had been torn in the beating he had received. His face was bruised and scratched, and his hair scattered over his forehead. The angry flush had not disappeared, however, and when he was pulled out of his prison he scowled boldly at Noah, and looked quite undismayed. "'Now, you're a nice young fellow, ain't you?' said Sowerberry, giving Oliver a shake and a box on the ear. "'He called my mother names,' replied Oliver. "'Well, and what have you did, you little ungrateful wretch?' said Mrs. Sowerberry. "'She deserved what he said, and worse.' she didn't said oliver she did said mrs sowerberry it's a lie said oliver mrs sowerberry burst into a flood of tears this flood of tears left mr sowerberry no alternative if he had hesitated for one instant to punish oliver most severely it must be quite clear to every experienced reader that he would have been according to all precedents in disputes of matrimony established a brute an unnatural husband an insulting creature a base imitation of a man and various other agreeable characters too numerous for recital within the limits of this chapter to do him justice he was as far as his power went it was not very extensive kindly disposed towards the boy perhaps because it was in his interest to be so, perhaps because his wife disliked him. The flood of tears, however, left him no resource. So he at once gave him a drubbing which satisfied even Mrs. Sowerberry herself, and rendered Mr. Bumble's subsequent application of the parochial cane rather unnecessary. For the rest of the day he was shut up in the back kitchen, in company with a pump and a slice of bread and at night mrs sowerberry after making various remarks outside the door by no means complimentary to the memory of his mother looked into the room and amidst the jeers and pointings of noah and charlotte ordered him upstairs to his dismal bed it was not until he was left alone in the silence and stillness of the gloomy workshop of the undertaker that oliver gave way to the feelings which the day's treatment may be supposed likely to have awakened in a mere child he had listened to their taunts with a look of contempt he had borne the lash without a cry for he felt that pride swelling in his heart which would have kept down a shriek to the last though they had roasted him alive but now when there were none to see or hear him he fell upon his knees on the floor and hiding his face in his hands wept such tears as god send for the credit of our nature few so young may ever have cause to pour out before him for a long time Oliver remained motionless in this attitude. The candle was burning low in the socket when he rose to his feet. Having gazed cautiously round him and listened intently, he gently undid the fastenings of the door and looked abroad. It was a cold, dark night. The stars seemed, to the boy's eyes, farther from the earth than he had ever seen them before. There was no wind, and the sombre shadows thrown by the trees upon the ground looked sepulchral and death-like from being so still. He softly reclosed the door. Having availed himself of the expiring light of the candle to tie up in a handkerchief the few articles of wearing apparel he had, he sat himself down upon a bench to wait for morning. With the first ray of light that struggled through the crevices of the shutters, Oliver arose and again unbarred the door. One timid look round, one moment's pause of hesitation. He had closed it behind him, and was in the open street. He looked to the right and to the left, uncertain whither to fly. He remembered to have seen the wagons as they went out toiling up the hill. He took the same route, and arriving at a footpath across the fields, which he knew after some distance, led out again into the road, struck into it, and walked quickly on. Along the same footpath Oliver well remembered he had trotted beside Mr. Bumble, when he first carried him to the workhouse from the farm. His way led directly in front of the cottage. His heart beat quickly when he bethought himself of this, and he half resolved to turn back. He had come a long way, though, and should lose a great deal of time by doing so. Besides, it was so early that there was very little fear of his being seen. So he walked on. He reached the house. There was no appearance of its inmate's stirring at that early hour. Oliver stopped and peeped into the garden. A child was weeding one of the little beds. As he stopped, he raised his pale face and disclosed the features of one of his former companions. Oliver felt glad to see him before he went, for, though younger than himself, he had been his little friend and playmate. They had been beaten and starved and shut up together many and many a time. "'Hush, Dick,' said Oliver, as the boy ran to the gate and thrust his thin arm between the rails to greet him.
1: Is anyone up?' "'Nobody but me,'
0: replied the child. "'You mustn't say you saw me, Dick,' said Oliver. "'I am running away. "'They beat and ill use me, Dick, and I am going to seek my fortune some long way off. I don't know where. How pale you are!' "'I heard the doctor tell them I was dying,' replied the child, with a faint smile. "'I am very glad to see you, dear. But don't stop, don't stop.' "'Yes, yes, I will, to say good-bye to you,' replied Oliver. "'I shall see you again, Dick. I know I shall. You will be well and happy.' "'I hope so,' replied the child. "'After I'm dead, but not before.' I know the doctor is right, Oliver, because I dream so much of heaven and angels, and kind faces that I never see when I am awake. "'Kiss me,' said the child, climbing up the low gate and flinging his little arms round Oliver's neck. "'Good-bye, dear. God
1: bless you.'
0: The blessing was from a young child's lips, but it was the first that Oliver had ever heard invoked upon his head. And through the struggles and sufferings and troubles and changes of his after-life, He never once forgot it. End of Chapter Seven. Chapter Eight of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tag Hines. Oliver walks to London. He encounters on the road a strange sort of young gentleman. Oliver reached the stile at which the by-path terminated, and once more gained the high-road. It was eight o'clock now. Though he was nearly five miles away from the town, he ran and hid behind hedges by turns till noon, fearing that he might be pursued and overtaken. Then he sat down to rest by the side of the milestone and began to think for the first time where he had better go and try to live. The stone by which he was seated bore, in large characters, an intimation that it was just seventy miles from that spot to London. The name awakened a new train of ideas in the boy's mind. London—that great large place! Nobody—not even Mr. Bumble—could ever find him there. He had often heard the old men in the workhouse, too, say that no lad of spirit need want in London, and that there were ways of living in that vast city which those who had been bred up in country parts had no idea of. It was the very place for a homeless boy who must die in the streets unless someone helped him. As these things passed through his thoughts he jumped upon his feet and again walked forward. He had diminished the distance between himself and London by full four miles more, before he recollected how much he must undergo ere he could hope to reach his place of destination. As this consideration forced itself upon him he slackened his pace a little, and meditated upon his means of getting there. He had a crust of bread, a coarse shirt, and two pairs of stockings in his bundle, and a penny, too—a gift of sourberries after some funeral in which he had acquitted himself more than ordinarily well—in his pocket. A clean shirt, thought Oliver, is a very comfortable thing, and so are two pairs of darned stockings, and so is a penny, but they are small helps to a sixty-five miles walk in winter-time. But Oliver's thoughts, like those of most other people, although they were extremely ready and active to point out his difficulties, were wholly at a loss to suggest any feasible mode of surmounting them. So, after a good deal of thinking to no particular purpose, he changed his little bundle over to the other shoulder and trudged on. Oliver walked twenty miles that day, and all the time tasted nothing but the crust of dry bread and a few draughts of water which he begged at the cottage doors by the roadside. When the night came, he turned into a meadow, and, creeping close under a hay-rick, determined to lie there till morning. He felt frightened at first, for the wind moaned dismally over the empty fields, and he was cold and hungry, and more alone than he had ever felt before. Being very tired with his walk, however, he soon fell asleep and forgot his troubles. He felt cold and stiff when he got up next morning, and so hungry that he was obliged to exchange a penny for a small loaf in the very first village through which he passed. He had walked no more than twelve miles when night closed in again. His feet were sore and his legs were so weak that they trembled beneath him. Another night passed in the bleak damp air made him worse. When he set forward on his journey next morning he could hardly crawl along. He waited at the bottom of a steep hill till a stage-coach came up and then begged of the outside passengers, but there were very few who took any notice of him, and even those told him to wait till they got to the top of the hill and then let them see how far he could run for a halfpenny. Poor Oliver tried to keep up with the coach a little way, but was unable to do it, by reason of his fatigue and sore feet. When the outside saw this they put their half-pence back into their pockets again, declaring that he was an idle young dog and didn't deserve anything, and the coach rattled away and left only a cloud of dust behind. In some villages large painted boards were fixed up, warning all persons who begged within the district that they would be sent to jail. This frightened Oliver very much, and made him glad to get out of those villages with all possible expedition. In others he would stand about the inn-yards, and look mournfully at every one who passed, a proceeding which generally terminated in the landlady's ordering one of the post-boys who were lounging about to drive that strange boy out of the place, for she was sure he had come to steal something. If he begged at a farmer's house, ten to one, they threatened to set the dog on him, and when he showed his nose in a shop they talked about the beadle which brought Oliver's heart into his mouth—very often the only thing he had there for many hours together. In fact, if it had not been for a good-hearted turnpike man and a benevolent old lady, Oliver's troubles would have been shortened by the very same process which had put an end to his mother's. In other words, he would most assuredly have fallen dead upon the King's highway. But the turnpike man gave him a meal of bread and cheese, and the old lady, who had a shipwrecked grandson wandering barefoot in some distant part of the earth, took pity upon the poor orphan, and gave him what little she could afford and more, with such kind and gentle words, and such tears of sympathy and compassion, that they sank deeper into Oliver's soul than all the sufferings he had ever undergone. Early on the seventh morning, after he had left his native place, Oliver limped slowly into the little town of Barnet. The window-shutters were closed. The street was empty, not a soul had awakened to the business of the day. The sun was rising in all its splendid beauty, but the light only served to show the boy his own lonesomeness and desolation as he sat, with bleeding feet and covered with dust, upon a doorstep. By degrees the shutters were opened, the window-blinds were drawn up, and people began passing to and fro. Some few stopped to gaze at Oliver for a moment or two, or turned round to stare at him as they hurried by. But none relieved him, or troubled themselves to inquire how he came there. He had no heart to beg, and there he sat. He had been crouching on the step for some time, wondering at the great number of public houses—every other house in Barnet was a tavern, large or small, gazing listlessly at the coaches as they passed through, and thinking how strange it seemed that they could do, with ease, in a few hours, what it had taken him a whole week of courage and determination beyond his years to accomplish. When he was roused by observing that a boy who had passed him carelessly some minutes before had returned and was now surveying him most earnestly from the opposite side of the way he took little heed of this at first but the boy remained in the same attitude of close observation so long that oliver raised his head and returned his steady look upon this the boy crossed over and walking close up to oliver said hello my cowvie what's the row The boy who addressed this inquiry to the young wayfarer was about his own age, but one of the queerest-looking boys that Oliver had ever seen. He was a snub-nosed, flat-browed, common-faced boy enough, and as dirty a juvenile as one would wish to see. But he had about him all the airs and manners of a man. He was short of his age, with rather bow-legs and little, sharp, ugly eyes. His hat was stuck on the top of his head so lightly that it threatened to fall off every moment, and would have done so very often, if the wearer had not had a knack of every now and then giving his head a sudden twitch, which brought it back to its old place again. He wore a man's coat which reached nearly to his heels, he had turned the cuffs back halfway up his arm, to get his hands out of the sleeves, apparently with the ultimate view of thrusting them into the pockets of his corduroy trousers, for there he kept them. He was altogether as roistering and swaggering a young gentleman as ever stood four feet six or something less, in the bluchers. "Hallo, my Covey, what's the row?' said this strange young gentleman to Oliver. "'I am very hungry and tired,' replied Oliver, the tears standing in his eyes as he spoke. "'I have walked a long way. I have been walking these seven days.' "'Walking for seven days?' said the young gentleman. "'Oh, I see—beak's order, eh?' "'But,' he added, noticing Oliver's look of surprise, "'I suppose you don't know what a beak is—my flash companion!' Oliver mildly replied that he had always heard a bird's mouth described by the term in question. "'My eyes—how green!' exclaimed the young gentleman. "'Why, a beak's a magistrate! And when you walk by a beak's order it's not straightforward but always a-going up, and never a-coming down again. Was you ever on the mill?' "'What mill?' inquired Oliver what mill why the mill the mill takes up so little room as it'll work inside a stone jug and always goes better when the wind's low with the people than when it's high cos then they can't get workmen but come said the young gentleman you want grub and you shall have it i'm at low-water mark myself only one bob and a magpie but as far as it goes i'll fork out and stomp up with you on your pins there now then morris Assisting Oliver to rise, the young gentleman took him to an adjacent chandler's shop, where he purchased a sufficiency of ready-dressed ham and a half-quartern loaf, or, as he himself expressed it, a fourpenny bran, the ham being kept clean and preserved from dust by the ingenious expedient of making a hole in the loaf by pulling out a portion of the crumb, and stuffing it therein. Taking the bread under his arm, the young gentleman turned into a small public-house, and led the way to a tap-room in the rear of the premises. Here a pot of beer was brought in by direction of the mysterious youth, and Oliver, falling to, at his new friend's bidding, made a long and hearty meal, during the process of which the strange boy eyed him from time to time with great attention. "'Going to London?' said the strange boy, when Oliver had at length concluded. "'Yes.' "'Got any lodgings?' "'No.' "'Money?' "'No.' The strange boy whistled, and put his arms into his pockets, as far as the big coat-sleeves would let them go. "'Do you live in London?' inquired Oliver. "'Yes, I do, when I'm at home,' replied the boy. "'I suppose you want some place to sleep to-night, don't you?' "'I do, indeed,' answered Oliver. I have not slept under a roof since I left the country. "'Don't fret your eyelids on that score,' said the young gentleman. I've got to be in London to-night, and I know a spectable old gentleman as lives there what'll give you lodgings for nothing, and never ask for the change—that is, if any gentleman he knows introduces you. And don't he know me? No, no, not in the least, by no means—certainly not!" The young gentleman smiled, as if to intimate that the latter fragments of discourse were playfully ironical, and finished the beer as he did so. This unexpected offer of shelter was too tempting to be resisted, especially as it was immediately followed up by the assurance that the old gentleman referred to would doubtless provide Oliver with a comfortable place, without loss of time. This led to a more friendly and confidential dialogue, from which Oliver discovered that his friend's name was Jack Dawkins, and that he was a peculiar pet and protege of the elderly gentleman before mentioned. Mr. Dawkins's appearance did not say a vast deal in favour of the comforts which his patron's interests obtained for those whom he took under his protection, but as he had a rather flighty and dissolute mode of conversing, and furthermore avowed that among his intimate friends he was better known by the sobriquet of the artful Dodger, Oliver concluded that, being of a dissipated and careless turn, the moral precepts of his benefactor had hitherto been thrown away upon him. Under this impression he secretly resolved to cultivate the good opinion of the old gentleman as quickly as possible, and, if he found the Dodger incorrigible, as he more than half suspected he should, to decline the honour of his further acquaintance. As John Dawkins objected to their entering London before nightfall, it was nearly eleven o'clock when they reached the turnpike at Islington. They crossed from the Angel to St. John's Road, struck down the small street which terminates at Saddler's Wells Theatre through Exmouth Street and Coppice Row, down the little court by the side of the workhouse, across the classic ground which once bore the name of Hockley in the Hole, thence into Little Saffron Hill, and so into Saffron Hill the Great, along which the dodger scudded at a rapid pace, directing Oliver to follow close at his heels. Although Oliver had enough to occupy his attention in keeping sight of his leader, he could not help bestowing a few hasty glances on either side of the way as he passed along a dirtier or more wretched place he had never seen. The street was very narrow and muddy, and the air was impregnated with filthy odours. There were a good many small shops, but the only stock-and-trade appeared to be heaps of children, who, even at that time of night, were crawling in and out at the doors or screaming from the inside. The sole places that seemed to prosper amid the general blight of the place were the public houses, and in them the lowest orders of Irish were wrangling with might and main covered ways and yards, which here and there diverged from the main street, disclosed little knots of houses, where drunken men and women were positively wallowing in filth, and from several of the doorways great ill-looking fellows were cautiously emerging, bound to all appearance, on no very well-disposed or harmless errands. Oliver was just considering whether he hadn't better run away when they reached the bottom of the hill his conductor catching him by the arm pushed open the door of a house near field lane and drawing him into the passage closed it behind them now then cried a voice from below in reply to a whistle from the dodger "Plummy and slam was the reply this seemed to be some watchword or signal that all was right for the light of a feeble candle gleamed on the wall at the remote end of the passage and a man's face peeped out from where a balustrade of the old kitchen staircase had been broken away "'There's two on you,' said the man, thrusting the candle further out, and shielding his eyes with his hand. "'Who's the t'other one?' "'A new pal,' said Jack Dawkins, pulling Oliver forward. "'Where'd he come from? Greenland. Is Fagin upstairs?' "'Yes. He's a-sortin' the wipes. Up with you.' The candle was drawn back, and the face disappeared. Oliver, groping his way with one hand, and having the other firmly grasped by his companion, ascended with much difficulty the darkened broken stairs which his conductor mounted with an ease and expedition that showed he was well acquainted with them. He threw open the door of the back room, and drew Oliver in after him. The walls and ceiling of the room were perfectly black with age and dirt. There was a deal-table before the fire, upon which were a candle, stuck in a ginger-beer bottle, two or three pewter-pots, a loaf and butter, and a plate. In a frying-pan which was on the fire, and which was secured to the mantel-shelf by a string. Some sausages were cooking, and standing over them, with a toasting fork in his hand, was a very old shrivelled Jew, whose villainous-looking and repulsive face was obscured by a quantity of matted red hair. He was dressed in a greasy flannel gown with his throat bare, and seemed to be dividing his attention between the frying-pan and the clothes-horse, over which a great number of silk handkerchiefs were hanging. Several rough beds made of old sacks were huddled side by side on the floor. Seated around the table were four or five boys, none older than the Dodger, smoking long clay pipes and drinking spirits with the air of middle-aged men. These all crowded about their associate as he whispered a few words to the Jew, and then turned round and grinned at Oliver. So did the Jew himself, toasting-fork in hand. "'This is him, Fagin,' said Jack Dawkins, "'my friend Oliver Twist.' The Jew grinned, and, making a low obeisance to Oliver, took him by the hand, and hoped he should have the honour of his intimate acquaintance. Upon this the young gentleman with the pipes came round him, and shook both his hands very hard, especially the one in which he held his little bundle. One young gentleman was very anxious to hang up his cap for him, and another was so obliging as to put his hands in his pockets, in order that, as he was very tired, he might not have the trouble of emptying them himself when he went to bed. These civilities would probably be extended much further, but for the liberal exercise of the Jew's toasting-fork on the heads and shoulders of the affectionate youths who offer them. "'We are very glad to see you, Oliver. Very,' said the Jew. "Doja, take off the sausages and draw a tub near the fire for Oliver. Ah, you are staring at the pocket-handkerchiefs, eh, my dear? There are a good many of them, ain't there? We've just looked them out, ready for the rush. That's all, Oliver, that's all!' <laughs> The latter part of this speech was hailed by a boisterous shout from all the hopeful pupils of the merry old gentleman, in the midst of which they went to supper. Oliver ate his share, and the Jew then mixed him a glass of hot gin and water, telling him he must drink it off directly, because another gentleman wanted the tumbler. Oliver did as he was desired. Immediately afterwards he felt himself gently lifted on to one of the sacks, and then he sunk into a deep sleep. End of Chapter Eight. Chapter Nine of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. Containing further particulars concerning the pleasant old gentleman and his hopeful pupils. It was late next morning when Oliver awoke from a sound, long sleep. There was no other person in the room but the old Jew, who was boiling some coffee in a saucepan for breakfast, and whistling softly to himself as he stirred it round and round with an iron spoon. He would stop every now and then to listen when there was the least noise below, and when he had satisfied himself he would go on whistling and stirring again as before. Although Oliver had roused himself from sleep, he was not thoroughly awake. There is a drowsy state between sleeping and waking when you dream more in five minutes with your eyes half open and yourself half conscious of everything that is passing around you, than you would in five nights with your eyes fast closed and your senses wrapped in perfect unconsciousness. At such time a mortal knows just enough of what his mind is doing to form some glimmering conception of its mighty powers, its bounding from earth and spurning time and space, when freed from the restraint of its corporeal associate. Oliver was precisely in this condition. He saw the Jew, with his eyes half-closed, heard his low whistling, and recognised the sound of the spoon grating against the saucepan's sides. And yet the self-same senses were mentally engaged at the same time in busy action with almost everybody he had ever known. When the coffee was done, the Jew drew the saucepan to the hob. Standing then in an irresolute attitude for a few minutes, as if he did not well know how to employ himself, he turned round and looked at Oliver, and called him by his name. He did not answer, and was to all appearances asleep. After satisfying himself upon this head, the Jew stepped gently to the door which he fastened. He then drew forth, as it seemed to Oliver, from some trap in the floor, a small box which he placed carefully on the table. His eyes glistened as he raised the lid and looked in. Dragging an old chair to the table, he sat down and took from it a magnificent gold watch, sparkling with jewels. "Ah," said the Jew, shrugging up his shoulders and distorting every feature with a hideous
1: grin. "Clever dogs, clever dogs, staunch to the last. Never told the old parson where they were. Never poached upon old Fagin. And why should they? It wouldn't have loosened the knot, nor kept the drop up a minute longer." now now fine fellows fine fellows
0: with these and other muttered reflections of the like nature the jew once more deposited the watch in its place of safety at least half a dozen more were severally drawn forth from the same box and surveyed with equal pleasure besides rings brooches bracelets and other articles of jewellery of such magnificent materials and costly workmanship that oliver had no idea even of their names having replaced these trinkets the jew took out another so small that it lay in the palm of his hand there seemed to be some very minute inscription on it for the jew laid it flat upon the table and shading it with his hand pored over it long and earnestly at length he put it down as if despairing of success and
1: leaning back in his chair muttered what a fine thing capital punishment is dead men never repent dead men never bring awkward stories to light Ah, it's a fine thing for the trade five of em strung up in a row and none left to play booty or turn white slivered as the jew
0: uttered these words his bright dark eyes which had been staring vacantly before him fell on oliver's face the boy's eyes were fixed on his in mute curiosity and although the recognition was only for an instant for the briefest space of time that can be possibly conceived it was enough to show the old man that he had been observed He closed the lid of the box with a loud crash, and, laying his hand on a bread-knife which was on the table, started furiously up. He trembled very much, though, for, even in his terror, Oliver could see that the knife quivered in the air. "'What's that?' said the Jew.
1: "'What do you watch me for? Why are you awake? What have you seen? Speak out, boy, quick! Quick for your life!' "'I wasn't able to sleep any longer, sir,'
0: replied Oliver, meekly. "'I am very sorry if I have disturbed you, sir.' "'You were not awake an hour ago?' "'said the Jew, scowling fiercely on the boy. "'No, no, indeed,' replied Oliver.
1: "'Are you sure?'
0: cried the Jew, with a still fiercer look than before, and a threatening attitude. "'Upon my word I was not, sir,' replied Oliver earnestly. "'I was not, indeed, sir.' "'Tush, tush, my dear,' said the Jew, abruptly resuming his old manner, and playing with the knife a little before he laid it down,
1: as if to induce the belief that he had caught it up in mere sport. "'Of course I know that, my dear.' I only tried to frighten you. You're a brave boy. (laughs) You're a brave boy, Oliver."
0: The Jew rubbed his hands with a chuckle, but glanced uneasily at the box notwithstanding. "'Did you see any of these pretty things, my dear?' said the Jew, laying his hand upon it after a short pause. "'Yes, sir,' replied Oliver. "'Ah,' said the Jew, turning rather pale,
1: "'they're mine, Oliver, my little property. All I have to live upon in my old age.' the folks call me a miser my dear only a miser that's all
0: oliver thought the old gentleman must be a decided miser to live in such a dirty place with so many watches but thinking that perhaps his fondness for the dodger and the other boys cost them a good deal of money he only cast a deferential look at the jew and
1: asked if he might get up certainly my dear certainly replied the old gentleman stay there's a pitcher of water in the corner by the door Bring it here, and I'll give you a basin to wash in, my dear." Oliver got up,
0: walked across the room, and stooped for an instant to raise the pitcher. When he turned his head the box was gone. He had scarcely washed himself and made everything tidy by emptying the basin out of the window, agreeably to the Jews' directions, when the dodger returned, accompanied by a very sprightly young friend whom Oliver had seen smoking on the previous night, and who was now formally introduced to him as Charlie Bates. The four sat down to breakfast on coffee and some hot rolls and ham which the Dodger had brought home in the crown of his hat. Well, said the Jew, glancing slyly at Oliver, and addressing himself to the Dodger, I hope you've been at work this morning, my dears. Hard, replied the Dodger. As nails, added Charlie Bates. Good boys, good boys, said the Jew. What have you got, Dodger? A couple of pocket-books, replied that young gentleman. Lined, inquired the Jew with eagerness. Pretty well, replied the Dodger, producing two pocket books, one green and the other red. Not so heavy as it might be, said the Jew, after looking at the insides carefully. But very neat and nicely made. Ingenious workman, ain't he, Oliver? Very, indeed, sir, said Oliver, at which Mr Charlie Bates laughed uproariously, very much to the amazement of Oliver, who saw nothing to laugh at in anything that had passed. And what have you got, my dear? said Fagin to Charlie Bates. "'Wipes,' replied Master Bates, at the same time producing four pocket-handkerchiefs.
1: "'Well,' said the Jew, inspecting them closely, "'they're very good ones, very. "'You haven't marked them well, though, Charlie, "'so the marks shall have to be picked out with a needle, "'and we teach Oliver how to do it. "'Shall us, Oliver, aye?' (laughs) "'If you please, sir,' said Oliver. You'd like to be able to make pocket-handkerchiefs as easy as Charlie Bates, wouldn't you, my dear?" said the
0: Jew. "'Very much indeed, if you'll teach me, sir,' replied Oliver. Master Bates now saw something so exquisitely ludicrous in this reply that he burst into another laugh, which laugh, meeting the coffee he was drinking and carrying it down some wrong channel, very nearly terminated in his premature suffocation. "'He is so jolly green!' said Charlie, when he recovered, as an apology to the company for his unpolite behaviour. The Dodger said nothing, but he smoothed Oliver's hair over his eyes and said he'd know better by-and-by, upon which the old gentleman, observing Oliver's colour mounting, changed the subject by asking whether there had been much of a crowd at the execution that morning. This made him wonder more and more, for it was plain from the replies of the two boys that they had both been there and Oliver naturally wondered how they could possibly have found time to be so very industrious. When the breakfast was cleared away, the merry old gentleman and the two boys played at a very curious and uncommon game, which was performed in this way. The merry old gentleman, placing a snuff-box in one pocket of his trousers, a note-case in the other, and a watch in his waistcoat-pocket with a guard-chain round his neck, and sticking a mock-diamond pin in his shirt. Buttoned his coat tight round him, and putting his spectacle case and handkerchief in his pockets, trotted up and down the room with a stick, in imitation of the manner in which old gentlemen walk about the streets any hour in the day. Sometimes he stopped at the fireplace and sometimes at the door, making believe that he was staring with all his might into shop-windows. At such times he would look constantly round him, for fear of thieves, and would keep slapping all his pockets in turn to see that he hadn't lost anything in such a very funny and natural manner that Oliver laughed till the tears ran down his face. All this time the two boys followed him closely about, getting out of sight so nimbly every time he turned round that it was impossible to follow their motions. At last the dodger trod upon his toes or ran upon his boot accidentally, while Charlie Bates stumbled up against him behind and in that one moment they took from him with the most extraordinary rapidity snuff-box, note-case, watch-guard, chain, shirt-pin, pocket-handkerchief, even the spectacle-case. If the old gentleman felt a hand in any one of his pockets, he cried out where it was, and the game began all over again. When this game had been played a great many times, a couple of young ladies called to see the young gentleman, one of whom was named Bet, and the other Nancy. They wore a good deal of hair, not very neatly turned up behind, and were rather untidy about the shoes and stockings. They were not exactly pretty, perhaps, but they had a great deal of colour in their faces, and looked quite stout and hearty. Being remarkably free and agreeable in their manners, Oliver thought them very nice girls indeed, as there is no doubt they were. The visitors stopped a long time, spirits were produced in consequence of one of the young ladies complaining of a coldness in her inside and the conversation took a very convivial and improving turn. At length Charlie Bates expressed his opinion that it was time to pad the hoof. This, it occurred to Oliver, must be French for going out, for directly afterwards the Dodger and Charlie and the two young ladies went away together, having been kindly furnished by the amiable old Jew
1: with money to spend. "'There, my dear,' said Fagin, "'that's a pleasant life, isn't it? They've gone out for the day.' "'Have they done work, sir?' inquired oliver yes said the jew that is unless they should unexpectedly come across any when they are out and they won't neglect it if they do my dear depend upon it make em your models my dear make em your models tapping the fire-shovel on the hearth to add force to his words do everything they bid you take their advice in all matters especially the dodgers my dear he'll be a great man himself and will make you one too if you take pattern by him is my handkerchief hanging out of my pocket, my dear?" said the Jew, stopping short. Yes, sir, said Oliver. See if you can take it out without my feeling it, as you saw them do when we were at play this morning. Oliver held up the bottom of
0: the pocket with one hand, as he had seen the dodger hold it, and drew the handkerchief lightly out with the other. Is it gone? cried the Jew. Here it is, sir, cried Oliver, showing it in his hand. You're a clever boy, my dear said the playful old
1: gentleman, patting Oliver on the head approvingly. I never saw a sharper lad. Here's a shilling for you. And if you go on in this way you'll be the greatest man of all time. And now come here and I'll show you how to take the marks out of the handkerchiefs.
0: Oliver wondered what picking the old gentleman's pocket in play had to do with his chances of being a great man. But thinking that the old Jew, being so much his senior, must know best, he followed him quietly to the table. And was soon deeply involved in his new study. End of Chapter Nine. Chapter Ten of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tige Hines. Oliver becomes better acquainted with the characters of his new associates, and purchases experience at a high price being a short but very important chapter in this history. For many days Oliver remained in the Jew's room, picking the marks out of the pocket-handkerchiefs, of which a great number were brought home, and sometimes taking part in the game already described, which the two boys and the Jew played regularly every morning. At length he began to languish for fresh air, and took many occasions of earnestly entreating the old gentleman to allow him to go out to work with his two companions. Oliver was rendered the more anxious to be actively employed by what he had seen of the stern morality of the old gentleman's character. Whenever the Dodger or Charlie Bates came home at night empty-handed, he would expatiate with great vehemence on the misery of idle and lazy habits, and would enforce upon them the necessity of an active life, by sending them supperless to bed. On one occasion, indeed, he even went so far as to knock them both down a flight of stairs but this was carrying out his virtuous precepts to an unusual extent. At length one morning Oliver obtained the permission he had so eagerly sought. There had been no handkerchiefs to work upon for two or three days, and the dinners had been rather meagre. Perhaps these were reasons for the old gentleman's giving his assent, but whether they were or no he told Oliver he might go, and placed him under the joint guardianship of Charlie Bates and his friend the Dodger. The three boys sallied out the dodger with his coat-sleeves tucked up and his hat cocked as usual, Master Bates sauntering along with his hands in his pockets, and Oliver between them wondering where they were going and what branch of manufacture he would be instructed in first. The pace at which they went was such a very lazy ill-looking saunter that Oliver soon began to think his companions were going to deceive the old gentleman by not going to work at all. The dodger had a vicious propensity too of pulling the caps from the heads of small boys, and tossing them down areas, while Charlie Bates exhibited some very loose notions concerning the rights of property, by pilfering divers apples and onions from the stalls at the kennel sides, and thrusting them into his pockets which were so surprisingly capacious that they seemed to undermine his whole suit of clothes in every direction. These things looked so bad that Oliver was on the point of declaring his intention of seeking his way back in the best way he could, when his thoughts were suddenly directed into another channel by a very mysterious change of behaviour on the part of the dodger. They were just emerging from a narrow court not far from the open square in Clerkenwell, which is yet called by some strange perversion of terms the Green, when the dodger made a sudden stop, and laying his finger on his lips, drew his companions back again with the greatest caution and circumspection what's the matter demanded oliver hush replied the dodger do you see the old cove at the bookstall? the old gentleman over the way said oliver yes i see him he'll do said the dodger a prime plant observed master Charlie bates oliver looked from one to the other with the greatest surprise but he was not permitted to make any inquiries for the two boys walked stealthily across the road and slunk close behind the old gentleman towards whom his attention had been directed. Oliver walked a few paces after them, and not knowing whether to advance or retire, stood looking on in silent amazement. The old gentleman was a very respectable-looking personage, with a powdered head and gold spectacles. He was dressed in a bottle-green coat with a black velvet collar, wore white trousers, and carried a smart bamboo cane under his arm. He had taken up a book from the stall, and there he stood, reading away, as hard as if he were in his elbow-chair in his own study. It is very possible that he fancied himself there indeed, for it was plain from his abstraction that he saw not the book stall, nor the street, nor the boys, nor in short anything but the book itself, which he was reading straight through, turning over the leaf when he got to the bottom of the page, beginning at the top line of the next one, and going regularly on, with the greatest interest and eagerness. What was Oliver's horror and alarm as he stood a few paces off, looking on with his eyelids as wide open as they would possibly go, to see the dodger plunge his hand into the old gentleman's pocket, and draw from thence a handkerchief, to see him hand the same to Charlie Bates, and finally to behold them both running away round the corner at full speed. In an instant the whole mystery of the handkerchiefs and the watches and the jewels and the Jew rushed upon the boy's mind. He stood for a moment with the blood so tingling through all his veins from terror, that he felt as if he were in a burning fire. Then, confused and frightened, he took to his heels, and not knowing what he did, made off as fast as he could lay his feet to the ground. This was all done in a minute's space. In the very instant when Oliver began to run, the old gentleman, putting his hand in his pocket, and missing his handkerchief, turned sharp round seeing the boy scudding away at such a rapid pace he very naturally concluded him to be the depredator, and shouting, Stop! thief! with all his might, made off after him, buck in hand. But the old gentleman was not the only person who raised the hue and cry. The Dodger and Master Bates, unwilling to attract public attention by running down the open street, had merely retired to the first doorway round the corner. They no sooner heard the cry and saw Oliver running than guessing exactly how the matter stood. They issued forth with great promptitude, and shouting, Stop! Thief! too, joined in the pursuit like good citizens. Although Oliver had been brought up by philosophers, he was not theoretically acquainted with the beautiful axiom that self-preservation is the first law of nature. If he had been, perhaps, he would have been prepared for this. Not being prepared, however, it alarmed him the more, so away he went like the wind, with the old gentleman and the two boys roaring and shouting behind him. Stop! thief!" stop thief there is a magic in the sound the tradesman leaves his counter and the carman his waggon the butcher throws down his tray the baker his basket the milkman his pail the errand-boy his parcels the schoolboy his marbles the pavier the pickaxe the child his battle-door Away they run, pell-mell, helter-skelter, slapdash, tearing, yelling, screaming, knocking down the passengers as they turn the corners, rousing up the dogs and astonishing the fowls, and the streets, squares and courts re-echo with the sound. Stop, thief! Stop, thief! the cry is taken up by a hundred voices and the crowd accumulate at every turning away they fly splashing through the mud and rattling along the pavements up go the windows out run the people onward bear the mob a whole audience desert punch in the very thickest of the plot and joining the rushing throng swell the shout and lend fresh vigour to the cry "Stop stop thief stop thief stop thief There was a passion for hunting something deeply implanted in the human breast. One wretched, breathless child panting with exhaustion, terror in his looks, agony in his eyes, large drops of perspiration streaming down his face, strains every nerve to make head upon his pursuers, and as they follow on his track and gain upon him every instant, they hail his decreasing strength with still louder shouts, and whoop and scream with joy. Stop, thief! Stop him, for God's sake, were it only in mercy. Stopped at last, a clever blow, he is down upon the pavement, and the crowd eagerly gather round him, each newcomer jostling and struggling with the others to catch a glimpse. Stand aside. Give him a little air. Nonsense! He don't deserve it. Where's the gentleman? Here he is, coming down the street. Make room there for the gentleman. Is this the boy, sir? Yes?" Oliver lay covered with mud and dust. And bleeding from the mouth, looking wildly round upon the heap of faces that surrounded him, when the old gentleman was officiously dragged and pushed into the circle by the foremost of the pursuers. Yes, said the gentleman. I'm afraid it is the boy. Afraid murmured the crowd. That's a good un poor fellow, said the gentleman. Has he hurt himself? I did that, sir, said a great lubberly fellow stepping forward. Then preciously I cut me knuckle again his mouth. I stopped him, sir." The fellow touched his hat with a grin, expecting something for his pains. But the old gentleman, eyeing him with an expression of dislike, looked anxiously round, as if he contemplated running away himself, which it is very possible he might have attempted to do, and thus have afforded another chase, and not a police-officer, who was generally the last person to arrive in such cases, at that moment made his way through the crowd and seized Oliver by the collar. "'Come, get up!' said the man roughly. "'It wasn't me, sir. Indeed, indeed it was two other boys,' said Oliver, clasping his hands passionately and looking round. "'They're here somewhere.' "'No, no, they ain't,' said the officer. He meant this to be ironical, but it was true besides, for the Dodger and Charlie Bates had filed off down the first convenient court they came to. "'Come, get up!' "'Don't hurt him,' said the old gentleman, compassionately. "'Oh, no, I won't hurt him,' replied the officer tearing his jacket half off his back in proof thereof come i know you it won't do will you stand upon your legs you young devil oliver who could hardly stand made a shift to raise himself on his feet and was at once lugged along the streets by the jacket collar at a rapid pace the gentleman walked on with him by the officer's side and as many of the crowd as could achieve the feat got a little ahead and stared back at oliver from time to time the boys shouted in triumph and on they went. End of chapter ten. Chapter Eleven of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tide Hines. Treats of Mr. Fang, the police magistrate, and furnishes a slight specimen of his mode of administering justice. The offence had been committed within the district, and indeed in the immediate neighbourhood of, a very notorious metropolitan police-office. The crowd had only the satisfaction of accompanying Oliver through two or three streets, and down a place called Mutton Hill, when he was led beneath a low archway and up a dirty court, into this dispensary of summary justice by the back way. It was a small paved yard into which they turned and here they encountered a stout man with a bunch of whiskers on his face and a bunch of keys in his hand. "'What's the matter now?' said the man carelessly. "'A young fogle-hunter,' replied the man who had Oliver in charge. "'Are you the party that's been robbed, sir?' inquired the man, with the keys. "'Yes, I am,' replied the old gentleman. But I am not sure that this boy actually took the handkerchief. I—I would rather not press the case.' "'Must go before the magistrate now, sir,' replied the man. "'His worship will be disengaged in half a minute. Now, young Gallows!' This was an invitation to Oliver to enter through a door which he unlocked as he spoke, and which led into a stone cell. Here he was searched, and nothing being found upon him locked up. This cell was in size and shape something like an area cellar, only not so light. It was most intolerably dirty, for it was Monday morning, and it had been tenanted by six drunken people who had been locked up elsewhere since Saturday night. But this is little. In our station houses, men and women are every night confined on the most trivial charges. The word is worth noting. In dungeons, compared with which those in Newgate, occupied by the most atrocious felons, tried, found guilty, and under sentence of death, are palaces. Let any one who doubts this compare the two. The old gentleman looked almost as rueful as Oliver when the key grated in the lock. He turned with a sigh to the book, which had been the innocent cause of all this disturbance. "'There is something in that boy's face,' said the old gentleman to himself as he walked slowly away, tapping his chin with the cover of the book in a thoughtful manner.
1: Something that touches and interests me.
0: Can he be innocent? He looked like—by-the-bye,' exclaimed the old gentleman halting very abruptly, and staring up into the sky—'Bless my soul! Where have I seen something like that look before?' After musing for some minutes the old gentleman walked, with the same meditative face, into a back ante-room opening from the yard, and there, retiring into a corner, called up before his mind's eye a vast amphitheatre of faces over which a dusky curtain had hung for many years. "'No,' said the old gentleman, shaking his head. It must be imagination. He wandered over them again. He had called them into view, and it was not easy to replace the shroud that had so long concealed them. There were the faces of friends and foes, and of many that had been almost strangers, peering intrusively from the crowd. There were the faces of young and blooming girls that were now old women. There were faces that the grave had changed and closed upon, but which the mind, superior to its power, still dressed in their old freshness and beauty, calling back the lustre of the eyes, the brightness of the smile, the beaming of the soul through its mask of clay, and whispering of beauty beyond the tomb, changed but to be heightened, and taken from earth only to be set up as a light, to shed a soft and gentle glow upon the path to heaven. But the old gentleman could recall no one countenance of which Oliver's features bore a trace. So he heaved a sigh over the recollections he awakened, and being, happily for himself, an absent old gentleman, buried them again in the pages of the musty book. He was roused by a touch on the shoulder and a request from the man with the keys to follow him into the office. He closed his book hastily and was at once ushered into the imposing presence of the renowned Mr. Fang. The office was a front parlour with a panelled wall. Mr. Fang sat behind a bar at the upper end, and on one side of the door was a sort of wooden pen in which poor little Oliver was already deposited, trembling very much at the awfulness of the scene. Mr. Fang was a lean, long-backed, stiff-necked, middle-sized man, with no great quantity of hair, than what he had growing on the back and sides of his head. His face was stern and much flushed. If he were not really in the habit of drinking rather more than was exactly good for him, he might have brought an action against his countenance for libel and have recovered heavy damages. The old gentleman bowed respectfully, and, advancing to the magistrate's desk, said, suiting the action to the word, "'That is my name and address, sir.' He then withdrew a pace or two, and, with another polite and gentlemanly inclination of the head, waited to be questioned. Now it so happened that Mr. Fang was at that moment perusing a leading article in a newspaper of the morning. Adverting to some recent decision of his, and commending him for the three hundred and fiftieth time to the special and particular notice of the Secretary of State for the Home Department. He was out of temper, and he looked up with an angry scowl. "'Who are you?' said Mr. Fang. The old gentleman pointed with some surprise to his card. "'Officer,' said Mr. Fang, tossing the card contemptuously away with the newspaper, "'who is this fellow?' My name, sir, said the old gentleman, speaking like a gentleman, my name, sir, is Brownlow. Permit me to inquire the name of the magistrate who offers a gratuitous and unprovoked insult to a respectable person, under the protection of the bench. Saying this, Mr. Brownlow looked around the office, as if in search of some person who would afford him the required information. "'Officer,' said Mr. Fang, throwing the paper on one side, "'what's this fellow charged with?' "'He's not charged at all, your worship,' replied the officer. He appears against this boy, Your Worship.' His Worship knew this perfectly well, but it was a good annoyance and a safe one. "'Appears against the boy, does he?' said Mr. Fang, surveying Mr. Brownlow contemptuously from head to foot. "'Swear him.' "'Before I am sworn I must beg to say one word,' said Mr. Brownlow, and that is, that I really never, without actual experience, could have believed—' "'Hold your tongue, sir,' said Mr. Fang, peremptorily. "'I will not, sir.' replied the old gentleman. "'Hold your tongue this instant, or I'll have you turned out of the office,' said Mr. Fang. "'You are an insolent, impertinent fellow. How dare you bully a magistrate!' "'What!' exclaimed the old gentleman, reddening. "'Swear this person,' said Fang to the clerk, i will not hear another word. Swear him!' Mr. Brownlow's indignation was greatly roused, but reflecting perhaps that he might only injure the boy by giving vent to it, he suppressed his feelings and submitted to be sworn at once. "'Now,' said Fang, "'what's the charge against this boy? What have you got to say, sir?' "'I was standing at a bookstall, Mr. Brownlow began. "'Hold your tongue, sir,' said Mr. Fang. "'Policeman! Where's the policeman? Here, swear this policeman. Now, policeman, what is this?' The policeman, with becoming humility, related how he had taken the charge, how he had searched Oliver and found nothing on his person, and how that was all he knew about it. "'Are there any witnesses?' inquired Mr. Fang. Your Worship,' replied the policeman. Mr. Fang sat silent for some minutes, and then, turning round to the prosecutor, said in a towering passion, "'Do you mean to state what your complaint against this boy is, man, or do you not? You have been sworn. Now, if you stand there refusing to give evidence, I'll punish you for disrespect to the bench. I will by—' By what, or by whom, nobody knows, for the clerk and jailer coughed very loud just at the right moment, and the former dropped a heavy book upon the floor thus preventing the word from being heard—accidentally, of course. With many interruptions and repeated insults, Mr. Brownlow contrived to state his case, observing that in the surprise of the moment he had run after the boy because he had seen him running away, and expressing his hope that, if the magistrate should believe him, although not actually the thief, to be connected with the thieves, he would deal as leniently with him as justice would allow. "'He has been hurt already,' said the old gentleman, in conclusion. "'And I fear,' he added with great energy, looking towards the bar, "'I really fear that he is ill.' "'Oh, yes, I dare say,' said Mr. Fang, with a sneer. "'Come, none of your tricks here, you young vagabond. They won't do. What's your name?' Oliver tried to reply, but his tongue failed him. He was deadly pale, and the whole place seemed turning round and round. "'What's your name, you hardened scoundrel?' demanded Mr. Fang. "'Officer, what's his name?' This was addressed to a bluff old fellow in a striped waistcoat who was standing by the bar. He bent over Oliver and repeated the inquiry, but finding him really incapable of understanding the question, and knowing that his not replying would only infuriate the magistrate the more, and add to the severity of his sentence, he hazarded a guess. "'He says his name's Tom White, your worship,' said the kind-hearted thief-taker. "'No, he won't speak out, won't he?' said Fang. "'Very well, very well. Where does he live?' Where he can, Your Worship?' replied the officer, again pretending to receive Oliver's answer. "'Has he any parents?' inquired Mr. Fang. "'He says they died in his infancy, Your Worship,' replied the officer, hazarding the usual reply. At this point of the inquiry Oliver raised his head, and looking round with imploring eyes, murmured a feeble prayer for a draught of water. "'Stuff and nonsense,' said Mr. Fang. "'Don't try to make a fool of me.' "'I think he really is ill, Your Worship.' remonstrated the officer i know better said mr fang take care of him officer said the old gentleman raising his hands instinctively he'll fall down stand away officer cried fang let him if he likes oliver availed himself of the kind permission and fell to the floor in a fainting fit the men in the office looked at each other but no one dared to stir i knew he was shamming said fang as if this were incontestable proof of the fact let him lie there he'll soon be tired of that "'How do you propose to deal with the case, sir?' inquired the clerk, in a low voice. "'Summarily,' replied Mr. Fang. "'He stands committed for three months—hard labour, of course—clear the office.' The door was opened for this purpose, and a couple of men were preparing to carry the insensible boy to his cell, when an elderly man of decent but poor appearance, clad in an old suit of black, rushed hastily into the office and advanced towards the bench. "'Stop! Stop! Don't take him away!' For heaven's sake, stop a moment!' cried the newcomer, breathless with haste. Although the presiding genii in such an office as this exercise a summary and arbitrary power over the liberties, the good name, the character, almost the lives, of Her Majesty's subjects, especially of the poorer class, and although within such walls enough fantastic tricks are daily played to make the angels blind with weeping, they are closed to the public, save through the medium of the daily press nor were virtually, then? Mr. Fang was consequently not a little indignant to see an unbidden guest enter in such irreverent disorder. "'What is this? Who is this? Turn this man out! Clear the office!' cried Mr. Fang. "'I will speak!' cried the man. "'I will not be turned out. I saw it all. I keep the bookstall. I demand to be sworn. I will not be put down. Mr. Fang, you must hear me. You must not refuse, sir.' The man was right. His manner was determined, and the matter was growing rather too serious to be hushed up. "'Swear the man,' growled Mr. Fang, with a very ill grace. "'Now, man, what have you got to say?' "'This,' said the man, "'I saw three boys, two others, and the prisoner here, loitering on the opposite side of the way, when this gentleman was reading. The robbery was committed by another boy. I saw it done. I saw that this boy was perfectly amazed and stupefied by it.' Having by this time recovered a little breath, the worthy bookstall-keeper proceeded to relate in a more coherent manner the exact circumstances of the robbery. "'Why didn't you come here before?' said Fang, after a pause. "'I hadn't a soul to mind the shop,' replied the man. "'Everybody who could have helped me had joined in the pursuit. I could get nobody till five minutes ago, and I've run here all the way.' "'The prosecutor was reading, was he?' inquired Fang, after another pause. "'Yes,' replied the man, "'the very book he has in his hand.' "'No, oh, that book, eh?' said Fang. "'Is it paid for?' no it is not replied the man with a smile oh, dear me i forgot all about it exclaimed the absent old gentleman innocently a nice person to prefer a charge against a poor boy said fang with a comical effort to look humane i consider sir that you have obtained possession of that book under very suspicious and disreputable circumstances and you may think yourself very fortunate that the owner of the property declines to prosecute let us be a lesson to you my man or the law will overtake you yet The boy is discharged. Clear the office." "'Damn me!' cried the old gentleman, bursting out with the rage he had kept down so long. "'Damn me, I'll—' "'Clear the office,' said the magistrate. "'Officers, do you hear? Clear the office.' The mandate was obeyed, and the indignant Mr. Brownlow was conveyed out, with the book in one hand and the bamboo cane in the other, in a perfect frenzy of rage and defiance. He reached the yard, and his passion vanished in a moment. Little Oliver Twist lay on his back on the pavement, with his shirt unbuttoned and his temples bathed with water, his face a deadly white, and a cold tremble convulsing his whole frame. "'Poor boy—poor boy,' said Mr. Brownlow, bending over him. "'Call a coach, somebody—pray—directly.' A coach was obtained, and Oliver, having been carefully laid on the seat, the old gentleman got in and sat himself on the other.
1: "'May
0: I accompany you?' said the bookstall-keeper, looking in. Bless me, yes, my dear sir," said Mr. Brownlow quickly. "I forgot you, dear, dear. I have this unhappy book still. Jump in, poor fellow. There's no time to lose. The bookstall keeper got into the coach, and away they drove. End of Chapter Eleven. Chapter Twelve of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. In which Oliver is taken better care of than he ever was before, and in which the narrative reverts to the merry old gentleman and his youthful friends. The coach rattled away over nearly the same ground as that which Oliver had traversed when he first entered London in company with the Dodger, and, turning a different way when it reached the angel at Islington, stopped at length before a neat house, in a quiet shady street near Pentonville. Here a bed was prepared, without loss of time, in which Mr. Brownlow saw his young charge carefully and comfortably deposited, and here he was tended with a kindness and solicitude that knew no bounds. But for many days Oliver remained insensible to all the goodness of his new friends. The sun rose and sank and rose and sank again, and many times after that, and still the boy lay stretched on his uneasy bed, dwindling away beneath the dry and wasting heat of fever. The worm does not work more surely on the dead body than does this slow creeping fire upon the living frame. Weak and thin and pallid, he awoke at last from what seemed to have been a long and troubled dream. Feebly raising himself in the bed, with his head resting on his trembling arm, he looked anxiously around. What room is this? "'Where have I been brought to?' said Oliver. "'This is not the place I went to sleep in.' He uttered these words in a feeble voice, being very faint and weak, but they were overheard at once. The curtain at the bed's head was hastily drawn back, and a motherly old lady, very neatly and precisely dressed, rose as she undrew it from an armchair close by, in which she had been sitting at needlework. "'Hush, my dear,' said the old lady softly. "'You must be very quiet, or you will be ill again.' and you have been very bad—as bad as bad could be, pity nigh, Lie down again—there's it, dear." With those words the old lady very gently placed Oliver's head upon the pillow, and, smoothing back his hair from his forehead, looked so kindly and lovingly into his face that he could not help placing his little withered hand in hers and drawing it round his neck. "'Save us,' said the old lady, with tears in her eyes. "'What a grateful little dear it is—pretty creature!' "'What would his mother feel if she sat by him as I have, and could see him now?' "'Perhaps she does see me,' whispered Oliver, folding his hands together. "'Perhaps she has sat by me. I almost feel as if she had.' "'That was the fever, my dear,' said the old lady, mildly. "'I suppose it was,' replied Oliver, "'because Heaven is a long way off, and they are too happy there to come down to the bedside of a poor boy. But if she knew I was ill, she must have pitied me even there, for she was very ill herself before she died.' she can't know anything about me though added oliver after a moment's silence if she had seen me hurt it would have made her sorrowful and her face has always looked sweet and happy when i have dreamed of her the old lady made no reply to this but wiping her eyes first and her spectacles which lay on the counterpane afterwards as if they were part and parcel of those features brought some cool stuff for oliver to drink and then patting him on the cheek told him he must lie very quiet or he would be ill again So Oliver kept very still, partly because he was anxious to obey the kind old lady in all things, and partly, to tell the truth, because he was completely exhausted with what he had already said. He soon fell into a gentle doze, from which he was awakened by the light of a candle, which being brought near the bed, showed him a gentleman with a very large and loud-ticking gold watch in his hand, who felt his pulse and said he was a great deal better. "'You are a great deal better, are you not, my dear?' said the gentleman. "'Yes, thank you, sir,' replied Oliver. "'Yes, I know you are,' said the gentleman. "'You're hungry too, aren't you?' "'No, sir,' answered Oliver. "'Hm,' said the gentleman. "'No, I know you're not.' "'He's not hungry, Mrs. Bedwin,' said the gentleman, looking very wise. The old lady made a respectful inclination of the head, which seemed to say that she thought the doctor was a very clever man. The doctor appeared much of the same opinion himself. "'You feel sleepy, don't you, my dear?' said the doctor. "'No, sir,' replied Oliver. "'No,' said the doctor, with a very shrewd and satisfied look. "'You're not sleepy, nor thirsty, are you?' "'Yes, sir, rather thirsty,' answered Oliver. "'Just as I expected, Mrs. Bedwin,' said the doctor. "'It's very natural that he should be thirsty. You may give him a little tea, ma'am, and some dried toast without any butter.' "'Don't keep him too warm, ma'am, but be careful that you don't let him be too cold. Will you have the goodness?' The old lady dropped a curtsey. The doctor, after tasting the cool stuff and expressing a qualified approval of it, hurried away, his boots creaking in a very important and wealthy manner as he went downstairs. Oliver dozed off again soon after this. When he awoke it was nearly twelve o'clock. The old lady tenderly bade him good-night shortly afterwards, and left him in charge of a fat old woman who had just come, bringing with her, in a little bundle, a small prayer-book and a large nightcap, Putting the latter on her head and the former on the table, the old woman, after telling Oliver that she had come to sit up with him, drew her chair close to the fire, and went off into a series of short naps chequered at frequent intervals with sundry tumblings forward and divers moans and chokings these however had no worse effect than causing her to rub her nose very hard and then fall asleep again and thus the night crept slowly on oliver lay awake for some time counting the little circles of light which the reflection of the rushlight shade threw upon the ceiling or tracing with his languid eyes the intricate pattern of the paper on the wall The darkness and the deep stillness of the room were very solemn. As they brought into the boy's mind the thought that death had been hovering there for many days and nights, and might yet fill it with the gloom and dread of his awful presence, he turned his face upon the pillow and fervently prayed to heaven. Gradually he fell into that deep, tranquil sleep which ease from recent suffering alone imparts—that calm and peaceful rest which it is pain to wake from who, if this were death, would be roused again to all the struggles and turmoils of life, to all its cares for the present, its anxieties for the future, and, more than all, its weary recollections of the past. It had been bright day for hours when Oliver opened his eyes. He felt cheerful and happy. The crisis of the disease was safely past. He belonged to the world again. In three days' time he was able to sit in an easy-chair, well propped up with pillows, and, as he was still too weak to walk, Mrs. Bedwin had him carried downstairs into the little housekeeper's room which belonged to her. Having him set here by the fireside, the good old lady sat herself down, too, and, being in a state of considerable delight at seeing him so much better, forthwith began to cry most violently. "'Never mind me, my dear,' said the old lady. "'I'm only having a regular good cry—there, it's all over now.' and I'm quite comfortable.' "'You are very, very kind to me, ma'am,' said Oliver. "'Well, you never mind that, my dear,' said the old lady. "'That's got nothing to do with your broth, and it's full time you had it, for the doctor says Mr. Brownlow may come in to see you this morning, and we must get up our best looks, because the better we look the more he'll be pleased.' and with this the old lady applied herself to warming up, in a little saucepan, a basin full of broth, strong enough, Oliver thought, to furnish an ample dinner, when reduced to the regulation strength, for three hundred and fifty paupers at the lowest computation. "'Are you fond of pictures, dear?' inquired the old lady, seeing that Oliver had fixed his eyes most intently on a portrait which hung against the wall just opposite his chair. "'I don't quite know, ma'am,' said Oliver, without taking his eyes from the canvas, I have seen so few that I hardly know. What a beautiful, mild face that lady's is!" "'Ah!' said the old lady. "'Painters always make ladies out prettier than they are, for they wouldn't get any custom, child. The man that invented the machine for taking likenesses might have known that would never succeed. It's a deal, too, honest—a deal!' said the old lady, laughing very heartily at her own acuteness. "'Is—is is that a likeness, ma'am?' said Oliver. ''Yes,'' said the old lady, looking up for a moment from the broth, ''that's a portrait.'' ''Whose, ma'am?'' asked Oliver. ''Well, really, my dear, I don't know,'' answered the old lady, in a good-humoured manner. ''It's not a likeness of anybody that you or I know, I expect. It seems to strike your fancy, dear. It is so pretty,'' replied Oliver. ''Why, sure you're not afraid of it?'' said the old lady, observing in great surprise the look of awe with which the child regarded the painting. Oh no no returned oliver quickly but the eyes look so sorrowful and where i sit they seem fixed upon me it makes my heart beat added oliver in a low voice as if it was alive and wanted to speak to me but
1: couldn't lord save us
0: exclaimed the old lady starting don't talk in that way child you're weak and nervous after your illness let me wheel your chair round to the other side and then you won't see it there said the old lady suiting the action to the word you don't see it now at all events.' Oliver did see it in his mind's eye as distinctly as if he had not altered his position, but he thought it better not to worry the kind old lady, so he smiled gently when she looked at him, and Mrs. Bedwin, satisfied that he felt more comfortable, salted and broke bits of toasted bread into the broth, with all the bustle befitting so solemn a preparation. Oliver got through it with extraordinary expedition. He had scarcely swallowed the last spoonful when there came a soft rap at the door. "'Come in,' said the old lady, and in walked Mr. Brownlow. Now the old gentleman came in as brisk as need be, but he had no sooner raised his spectacles on his forehead and thrust his hands behind the skirts of his dressing-gown, to take a good long look at Oliver, than his countenance underwent a great variety of odd contortions. Oliver looked very worn and shadowy from sickness and made an ineffectual attempt to stand up out of respect to his benefactor, which terminated in his sinking back into the chair again. And the fact is, if truth must be told, that Mr. Brownlow's heart, being large enough for six ordinary old gentlemen of humane disposition, forced a supply of tears into his eyes by some hydraulic process which we are not sufficiently philosophical to be in a condition to explain. "'Poor boy! poor boy!' said Mr. Brownlow, clearing his throat. "'I'm rather hoarse this morning, Mrs. Bedwin. I'm afraid I've caught cold.' "'I hope not, sir,' said Mrs. Bedwin. "'Everything you've had has been well aired, sir.' "'I don't know, Bedwin, I don't know,' said Mr. Brownlow. "'I rather think I had a damp napkin at dinner-time yesterday. But never mind that. How do you feel, my dear?' "'Very happy, sir,' replied Oliver. "'And very grateful indeed, sir, for your goodness to me.' "'Good boy,' said Mr. Brownlow stoutly. Have you given him any nourishment, Bedwin? any slops, eh?' "'He has just had a basin of beautiful strong broth, sir,' replied Mrs. Bedwin, drawing herself up slightly, and laying strong emphasis on the last word, to intimate that between slops and broth well compounded there existed no affinity or connection whatsoever. "'Ugh!' said Mr. Brownlow, with a slight shudder. "'A couple of glasses of port wine would have done him a great deal more good. Wouldn't they, Tom White, eh?' My name is Oliver, sir, replied the little invalid with a look of great astonishment. Oliver, said Mr Brownlow. Oliver what? Oliver White, eh? No, sir. Twist. Oliver Twist. Queer name, said the old gentleman. What made you tell the magistrate your name was White? I never told him so, sir, returned Oliver in amazement. This sounded so like a falsehood that the old gentleman looked somewhat sternly in Oliver's face. It was impossible to doubt him. There was truth in every one of his thin and sharpened lineaments. "'Some mistake,' said Mr. Brownlow. But although his motive for looking steadily at Oliver no longer existed, the old idea of the resemblance between his features and some familiar face came upon him so strongly that he could not withdraw his gaze. "'I hope you are not angry with me, sir,' said Oliver, raising his eyes beseechingly. "'No, no,' replied the old gentleman. "'Why, what's this? Bedwin, look there!' As he spoke he pointed hastily to the picture over Oliver's head, and then to the boy's face. There was its living copy—the eyes, the head, the mouth, every feature was the same. The expression was for the instant so precisely alike that the minutest line seemed copied with startling accuracy. Oliver knew not the cause of this sudden exclamation, for, not being strong enough to bear the start it gave him, he fainted away. A weakness on his part which affords the narrative an opportunity of relieving the reader from suspense, in behalf of the two young pupils of the merry old gentleman, and of recording that when the dodger and his accomplished friend, Master Bates, joined in the hue and cry which was raised at Oliver's heels. In consequence of their executing an illegal conveyance of Mr. Brownlow's personal property, as has already been described, they are actuated by a very laudable and becoming regard for themselves. And, forasmuch as the freedom of the subject and the liberty of the individual are among the first and proudest boasts of a true-hearted Englishman, so I need hardly beg the reader to observe that this action should tend to exalt them in the opinion of all public and patriotic men in almost as great a degree as this strong proof of their anxiety for their own preservation and safety goes to corroborate and confirm the little code of laws which certain profound and sound-judging philosophers have laid down as the main springs of nature's deeds and actions—the said philosophers very wisely reducing the good lady's proceedings to matters of maxim and theory, and by a very neat and pretty compliment to her exalted wisdom and understanding putting entirely out of sight any considerations of heart or generous impulse and feeling. For these are matters totally beneath a female who is acknowledged, by universal admission, to be far above the numerous little foibles and weaknesses of her sex. If I wanted any further proof of the strictly philosophical nature of the conduct of these young gentlemen, in their very delicate predicament, I should at once find it in the fact, also recorded in a foregoing part of this narrative, of their quitting the pursuit when the general attention was fixed upon Oliver, and making immediately for their home by the shortest possible cut. Although I do not mean to assert that this is usually the practice of renowned and learned sages, to shorten the road to any great conclusion, their course indeed being rather to lengthen the distance, by various circumlocutions and discursive staggerings, like unto those in which drunken men, under the pressure of a too-mighty flow of ideas, are prone to indulge. Still, I do mean to say, and do say distinctly, that it is the invariable practice of many mighty philosophers, in carrying out their theories, to evince great wisdom and foresight in providing against every possible contingency, which can be supposed at all likely to affect themselves. Thus, to do a great right, you may do a little wrong, and you may take any means which the end to be attained will justify, the amount of the right, or the amount of the wrong, or indeed the distinction between the two, being left entirely to the philosopher concerned, to be settled and determined by his clear, comprehensive, and impartial view of his own particular case. It was not until the two boys had scoured with great rapidity through a most intricate maze of narrow streets and courts, that they ventured to halt beneath a low and dark archway. Having remained silent here just long enough to recover breath to speak, Master Bates uttered an exclamation of amusement and delight, and, bursting into an uncontrollable fit of laughter, flung himself upon a doorstep, and rolled thereon in a transport of mirth.
1: "'What's the matter?'
0: inquired the dodger. (laughs) <laughs> roared Charlie bates hold your noise remonstrated the dodger looking cautiously round do you want to get grabbed stupid
1: i can't help it
0: said Charlie.
1: i can't help it to see him splitting away at that pace and cutting round the corners and knocking up again the posts
0: and starting on again as if he was made of iron as well as them and me with the wipe in my pocket singing out after him. Oh my eye The vivid imagination of Master Bates presented the scene before him in two strong colours. As he arrived at this apostrophe, he again rolled upon the doorstep and laughed louder than before. "'What will Fagin say?' inquired the dodger, taking advantage of the next interval of breathlessness on the part of his friend to propound the question. "'What?' repeated Charlie Bates. "'Ah, what?' said the dodger. "'Why, what should he say?' inquired Charlie, stopping rather suddenly in his merriment, for the Dodger's manner was impressive. What should he say? Mr. Dawkins whistled for a couple of minutes, then, taking off his hat, scratched his head and nodded thrice. What do you mean? said Charlie. Touralo, gammon and spinach, the froggy wouldn't and high cockalurum, said the Dodger, with a slight sneer on his intellectual countenance. This was explanatory but not satisfactory. Master Bates felt it so, and said again, "'What do you mean?' The Dodger made no reply, but putting his hat on again, and gathering the skirts of his long-tailed coat under his arm, thrust his tongue into his cheek, slapped the bridge of his nose some half-dozen times in a familiar but expressive manner, and turning on his heel slunk down the court. Master Bates followed with a thoughtful countenance. The noise of footsteps on the creaking stairs a few minutes after the occurrence of this conversation roused the merry old gentleman as he sat over the fire with a saveloy and a small loaf in his left hand, and a pocket-knife in his right, and a pewter-pot on the trivet. There was a rascally smile on his white face as he turned round, and, looking sharply out from under his thick red eyebrows, bent his ear towards the door and listened. "'Why, how's this?' muttered the Jew, changing countenance.
1: "'Only two of them. Where's the third? They can't have got into trouble. Back.
0: The footsteps approached nearer. They reached the landing. The door was slowly opened and the Dodger and Charlie Bates entered, closing it behind them. End of chapter twelve What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy and delicious breads, buns and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to eleven grams of protein and high fibre in every delicious serving.